Welcome to our nearest podcast for the holidays with Chairman Marty Oberman with the Surface Transportation Board. On behalf of NEARS, I'm Dennis Wilmot, the President and CEO of Iron Horse Logistics Group, and we're glad to have everyone join us today as we're, we're kind of in the holiday spirit in the, the holiday timeframe in the mid-December when this is broadcasting. So uh, I want to first say thank you to Marty for taking time out of a very busy schedule to stop by our studio, so to speak, and uh, join us for a little conversation. Uh, welcome, Marty. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, just uh, thinking about the holidays, I was thinking about this earlier. What kind of schedule do you have there for the holidays? Do you get any kind of extra break or anything? Well, it's an excellent question. You know, having spent mo many decades up to now in the private sector, I tend not to do any work like most people between Christmas and New Year's, but the government, unless the Congress shuts us down, doesn't shut down, and we still have to be there and on duty, but things happen in the rail industry, it never ends, of course. Uh, I do try to give uh, as many staff as possible a little extra time off beyond the, the usual. We've had a very, very long trying year for our staff in terms of just the demands on our work our workforce. Uh, so I try to be as generous as I can uh, within the restrictions of the federal personnel system, which are many. Yeah. I fight with them probably as much as I fight with the railroad. So it's not too different. Yeah. Well, hopefully you get some time to, uh, to take off and enjoy Christmas and New Year's and all of the things that are going on there. Um, I, I will. Like everybody else, our family comes together around that time so i will take some time yeah good good uh we yeah it's really an interesting time of the year obviously um now when this gets broadcast things might be different but while we're recording it we're still on this precipice of not knowing about whether a railroad strike is going to take place or not uh what is the sense there in washington about that is there any Obviously, nobody wants it. I, I would be, think it's fair to say. Um, well, we've had we have had a recent positive move, and that is the unions, which have uh, so far rejected ratification, have just now agreed to extend their cooling off period so everything coincides in December. So we have time before that cooling part off period ends for the parties to continue to try to work their differences out. And I know that that effort is ongoing with great intensity. So by the time we air this uh, discussion, it may be there's been a solution. Uh, I think many people assume that the Congress would step in and either prevent a strike or end one shortly or a lockout, which is also possible. Uh, but I make no assumption one way or the other because I don't feel I have any great intelligence about predicting what this Congress or any Congress will do. So, uh, yeah. But obviously that avenue is there. It's happened in the past uh, that Congress has stepped in. And so I think people on all sides assume that Congress would do something. What they would do, that's open. That's an open question. Would Congress impose the results 
of the PEB as issued, would they impose the results of the PEB plus the tentative agreements, which were worked out, some of which were ratified, some weren't? Or would the Congress um, change the tentative agreements to add or detract from what uh, the awards have been to, or what the agreements have been for labor? I don't think anybody could predict that at this point. I think one of the questions that I hear a lot now is that, you know, why do we keep coming back to this? Isn't there a better way to do this? So we, we don't have this walking close to a cliff and everybody uh, going crazy before and then suddenly have to rush to some solution as opposed to having a better process that. Well, it's a good question. I have my hands full of being an expert in the Staggers Act. So I'm not an expert in the Railway Labor Act been around for 100 years or so. Uh, overall, I suspect people would say it has generally worked to keep uh, railroads and airlines flowing. Uh, but uh, we may be in a different time, uh, given all of the changes in the labor situation in the railroads, particularly the great reduction in the workforce, which my judgment has contributed to a lot of the tension and strife between management and labor. Uh, if not, maybe even more than contributed, maybe the principal cause for the work-life quality issues, which have been at the heart of these negotiations. Uh, so it, it could be that somebody else with authority over the Railway Labor Act ought to look at it, but I'm not urging it because I don't know enough about it. Yeah, but you raise a good question anyway. Yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of 2022. It's been uh, it's been a crazy three years. If you figure 2020 was the COVID year when everything went shut down and then crawled back, and 21 was some amount of recovery, and here we are, 2022, finishing up the year and. And uh, there's a, a ton of things that are still keeping you very busy, obviously, at the Surface Transportation Board. And some things have had a lot of progress and things are still in the hopper being worked. And as we come to the end of the year, it's a good time to give you an opportunity to kind of give us a, a little summary of, of the key things that uh, have happened this year and, and where were we heading into, into 23. Well, it has been a uh, momentous year just from the assignments uh, that have fallen on the on the STB. Uh, the longtime staff that have been with the STB tell me that we haven't seen this kind of activity in a long, long time, decades. Uh, so if you look at the year now in retrospect, uh, we began with hearings on a very large transaction, the CSX Pan Am transaction, which was larger than most uh, in recent years. Uh, we also had a lengthy hearing on reciprocal switching around the same time, an issue which I had hoped to have made much more progress on by this time. And we are making progress and that will, that issue will be moved forward as and it's, it's underway now as we speak, and it will be as when this uh, discussion airs. Uh, so that was the early part of the year. And then we had the service meltdown, or as one Wall Street analyst called it, a service crisis. And I think that that's an accurate statement. 
Mm -hmm. uh, in the early part of the year, which led to the unusual two-day hearing we had in April, uh, followed by a whole new reporting regime that we issued as a result of those hearings, which is ongoing, and it was recently extended to next May of 2023. So the service meltdown and the service recovery has got a long way to go as the year ends. Uh, and our uh, not only those hearings, but our monitoring the situation and our ongoing interaction with each of the railroads uh, to be kept up to date on their progress or lack thereof uh, has really occupied a great deal of the board's time, the board staff and the board members. Um, so then you add to that the CPKCS merger and all of the hearings we've had on that and the mammoth undertaking it is for staff to under to review that merger before we act on it. Uh, thousands of miles of route have to be analyzed, both from the transportation side and the environmental side. It's a, it's a, a gigantic undertaking. There hasn't been a class one merger of two class one since the 90s, uh, 2000 or so. So it, it has been a an all-encompassing year. It's been a very enlightening year. I'd like to think we've made some progress in grappling with the issues that, that are facing the rail industry. We certainly haven't come up with all the solutions. Uh, and of course, we have a number of rulemakings. Uh, we're right on the cusp of when this program is aired that I hope we will finally have seen action on the pending rules dealing with arbitration and final offer in terms of rape cases. Can't tell you maybe by the time this program's on, we'll know the outcome. I can't tell you as we talk today because we haven't made any final decisions. And of course, I mentioned reciprocal switching, which is still a very high priority. And there are a number of other rulemakings and cases which are pending, but it has been a, a, a momentous year for the board and the, particularly the board staff. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot, I mean, uh, Amtrak, there's a lot of stuff. Oh, I, I completely left out the Gulf Coast case. I knew there was something else that took our time. We had the, uh, uh, I'm glad you mentioned it, Dennis. I don't know how it could slip my mind. It's right in front of us, front and center as we're talking. You know, the uh, Amtrak filed a petition a year and a half ago uh, seeking to reinstate service on the Gulf Coast line between uh, New Orleans and Mobile. And they filed the case under a statute which has been on the books for 50 years and never been used before. So it's a whole new ball game for the parties, but also for the board and its staff. Uh, the statute they use requires us to have a hearing that is court-like, uh, uh, actually no real different from a trial in a courtroom with sworn testimony and cross-examination by the parties. What we thought would be a two-day hearing uh, ended up going dragging on for about 11 days last spring and it's not over yet. Uh, so of course that was another challenge for us. <laughs> I don't know how I could have forgotten to mention it. Uh, so yes, we've had a number of unprecedented events this year. And by the way, in the middle of the service crisis, we issued an emergency service order in June. And I think it's the first one in about 10 years involving uh, near catastrophe at one of the major poultry producers. And, in the Western part of the country, foster farms, uh, because they could not get their unit trains with feed, animal feed. And they, they were several times on the edge of uh, euthanizing millions of chickens. 
and uh, fortunately that did not happen, but we had to step in. Uh, so a number of, of unusual, unprecedented activities at the board this year. Yeah, it's been. Um, I should, I, you know, I should add, by the way, when people think about the board, this is the first year that the board had five members. Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, I think uh, Karen Hedlund joined right at the first of the year. And uh, so we have functioned differently as five people, as a board, as an institution, and individually, all to the great positive, because having five members has fostered a great more ability for board members to communicate and consult with each other one-on-one -on -one, uh, and work out uh, solutions to cases, uh, policy discussions. It's been very, very constructive, and the group is a terrific group. I've never worked with a more cohesive, uh, constructive group of people, even though we have different views, different backgrounds, some different levels of liberalism or conservatism, but everybody has, has comes to work every day with a very constructive attitude towards solving the industry's issues. And uh, so, you know, I'm blessed with that. You know, I could have a very different group to work with. And I don't know that the board would have been nearly as productive as it has been. Yeah, you, you raise an interesting point, the idea that you have had five board members now. And you mentioned that, that very heavy workload and the great staff that you have. What is, how, what is the size of the staff that, the, that you have there? The size is not enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have, uh, uh, my staff may have to correct me, somewhere around 125 people on the payroll. Right now we have some contractors maybe closer to 130 if you add those. Uh, we, you know, we're the government, so we're limited in what we can offer people. We have really highly uh, trained professionals, of particularly lawyers and economists and, and others too, uh, real industry experts uh, as well who work for us, who could be making far more in the private sector. We're lucky to have them. Uh, but it also is a challenge to attract more people to, to come in. And of course, we have our share of retirements. Uh, so it's a constant struggle to add staff and increase staff, but we're working on it. And uh, we are adding staff. We need to get up to our budget level of about 140, 142. I would like to get there sooner rather than later. We're trying. We also have a new assignment from the Congress, really, to begin implementing the on-time performance, the new on-time performance rules, hmm. which will require us to either initiate or hear uh, complaints for investigations of, of, of a uh, violation of those on-time performance standards. And we're, we're, we've already created a whole new office, the Officer, Office of Passenger Rail, uh, which ultimately will be staffed with up to 10 people. We're not going to staff it at that level overnight, but we will, I would say, in the next year or two, get there, depending on the level of cases that come in and how fast we can find people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when people think of the STB, they tend to think of the, the, the five commissioners or the five members on the board and forget that there's this large... Uh, group. I mean, you say not enough, but it's still, it's a good sized group. 
and it involves, I mean, a, a lot of attorneys, obviously, a lot of other types of skill sets that are in there. There's technology people, there's the, the people on the advocacy group. So uh, there's a, a wide range of, of uh, folks there and uh, a, a lot well, to and uh, I don't, I'm glad you said that too, because I don't think people, even people who interact with us all the time, and certainly the general public, have any idea of the workload carried by the staff. Everything we do is complicated because we're dealing with a very complex industry that's a network. Everything you do over here affects something over there. And so every case that we get, the small ones and the large ones, require an enormous amount of analysis by staff. So the board, you know, we're kind of the icing on the cake. We see the staff work and then we say yay or nay. We, we do a lot of our own homework as well, but it is based on the uh, ex excellent, unbelievably excellent staff work that we get. Yeah. We could not, we, you, you could not have an STB without the high caliber of staff that we have, it just wouldn't, couldn't and wouldn't function. Uh, well, and you obviously, you, you and some of the other uh, board members are in demand uh, for things like this. And we are. Together. By the way, I should add something that doesn't get discussed very often. I almost never get asked about it, but um, maybe it's implicit, but we don't have a politicized staff. We don't have turnovers from one administration to the other. And um, I think that is really essential because of the uh, continuity of the expertise that's been developed over the years is, is uh, totally uh, required for us to be able to function. Yeah. yeah, and when you think of the, the last, say, 10, 20 years, and now there are five members on the board, but as you say, that hasn't happened in forever. And so now you've got a, a larger group there and you can have some continuity, which is needed because there are so many large, I mean, you've already reviewed these major pressing issues that are going on and, and they're not going away. Um, more to follow, I'm sure. Uh, probably for the average person who is shipping by rail or involved in the rail marketplace, rail service is still the, the number one concern and, and hope that we see improvement. Uh, the different surveys that go out tend to start are reporting that most people are thinking that we're, we're not really gonna see any seismic change, any significant improvement uh, for another several months, we're talking mid-23 or through all of 23 uh, before we see any, any kind of significant improvement. Uh, I, I would hope we see improvement by then. Yeah. Uh, it's been a long time since service has fallen. You know, there were service issues even prior to the pandemic, and then they really cratered. Uh, and it is a long, slow process to get back. I mean, when you think about it, I don't think there's any doubt the railroads themselves say it, as well as all other stakeholders, shippers and labor, that the decline in service really stems primarily from the huge cut in rail workforces over the last six, eight, 10 years. Been a decline of about 45,000 workers out of 100 and 
55,000, so close 30, roughly 30%. Uh, the railroads are now in the process of trying to climb out of that chasm that they created themselves. And I, neither I nor anyone else is suggesting that they should hire another 45,000 people. But they need some meaningful number, more workers, they all say so. Uh, and I'm not talking about a goal in my mind of just getting back to where they were just before the pandemic. I'm talking about getting above those levels to a much more robust level of rail service for commodities that are not now being shipped on rail or too many are on truck. Uh, I think we need to grow the entire freight rail network to support the nation's economy. I think having the limited freight nail, uh, network that uh, the class one created for us with all their reduction in, in resources has been a damper on the economy. And it's, uh, we, we could be much stronger. So my goal is that we not only do better over the next few months, but we continue to grow the freight network, freight rail network beyond the levels that sort of where it's traditionally been the last six, eight, 10 years. Yeah, it's unfortunate that the, the capacity for shipping by rail has really little to do with physical capacity. It's being able to operate in a, in a fluid and... and uh... I think it's both. I think the principal limitation right now is uh, staff. Just right just don't have enough people to drive trains and to, and to operate in the yards. But there's also a point where the, you know, the, the physical infrastructure has been cut back over the years. Yards have been closed, obviously, right after uh, the years after the Staggers Act and after the mergers of the 90s, a great amount of double track and sightings were eliminated. Some of those are desperately needed. You know, they're very expensive to put back. Mm -hmm. um, and there are places in the country, came, we, we saw this uh, in the hearings we held on the Gulf Coast case and on the merger. A lot of those hearings focused on the places in the rail lines at stake where the infrastructure is already inadequate. And so the arguments were saying, well, if you allow the merger for in Houston, for example, we heard many arguments that if the merger goes through and the number of trains is increased, the local terminal can't handle it. The Gulf Coast case is all about the railroads claiming that adding four passenger trains a day is more than that line can handle. And then you look at, well, why is that? Because they the track, the yards are too small. They're building long trains out on the main lines that stop up the main lines, even without passenger service. So there are, and those are just two examples that we happen to have hearings on. There are places all over the country where the physical infrastructure is just too limited. There are places where it's increasing. You know, it's interesting, you know, for example, BN has triple tracked a large parts of its whole Southern Transcon, that's great. But how about all the places that aren't even double tracked? Um, so it's, it's both, Dennis, but the immediate acute need is people. Yeah. Uh, and, and I do think you're absolutely right, the existing physical infrastructure could handle a lot more rail traffic if they just had enough people to make it run fluidly. Yeah, I mean, the goal of that, what has almost become a dirty word, PSR, 
the goal of that was to streamline operations in such a way, the alleged goal was to streamline operations in such a way that effectively it would create more capacity with the same or with fewer people and fewer everything. But obviously that, that didn't quite work out too well. So hopefully, as you say, hopefully things can be restored and improved and service can be can continuously improved. So we, we do get back to and above. I will say this, there isn't the slightest doubt in my mind that service can be improved if the will to improve it is there. Yeah. And I'm waiting to see that. I've heard a lot of talk and I'm waiting to see the delivery. Right. Well, that, that uh, will take us into the end of 2022 and into 2023. Uh, do you expect to see anything new in 2023? Um, that that is just now uh, seeds are planted, things are are coming up now that that will be significant in in the, the next year. Here's what I'm going to say. How I'm going to answer that question. I do expect to see something new in 2023, and I have no idea what that is because a year ago, if you'd asked me what I expected to see in 2022, I I would have said I have no idea. And then look at all the things that happened. Yeah. So I'm sure that new things will happen next year. But specifically, I'm not aware of any mergers or acquisitions uh, wending their way through negotiations, uh, nor am I aware of, you know, I, we have our hands full in terms of uh, pending rule makings and regulations that were either, have, you know, come close, we're close to being able to finalize or we're still working on uh, that that will keep us keep our hands full for months and months to come. So right now, I don't know what's going to be new, but I've, I would be stupid if I didn't say I've learned in the last three and a half years that the railroad industry presents us with new unexpected challenges every day. So yeah. there will be problems. I don't know what they are. Or some, sometimes the new, the new things that are interjected into the marketplace are decisions by the surfboard. So some of the things that could happen could, could create new things for the shipping community, the carrier community. I'm thinking of like the reciprocal switching cases and that whole concept, uh, which is, has the potential, depending on where it goes, uh, to be a pretty significant change for everybody. It could be, you know, I don't know what, I don't know, first of all, if the boats are there to enact any rule there's a lot of positive discussion among the board members about moving forward, generally speaking, with the concept. But what it might look like and what a majority of the board members would ultimately vote for, I could not predict. But assuming that we actually enacted a rule which provides some meaningful availability of reciprocal switching, uh, then I agree with you. That will be interesting to see how the industry responds. Uh, you know, there's a lot of hand wringing and wailing by the railroads on one side and a lot of claims by the shippers on the other side that this will, you know, be a great uh, solution to many of their problems. Um, I think that if we enact a loosening, a rule which loosens up the availability of reciprocal switching, no one knows for sure how it will play out. No one knows how many people will ask for it. How many 
competing railroads will actually want to compete for the available business. A lot of cynicism out there that even if we gave everybody the right to reciprocal switching, the competitive railroad wouldn't actually seek to compete. So I think we don't, we don't and won't know how it's going to impact the industry until we enact something. Having said that, it seems likely it will be a, in some ways, uh, a significant change in, in how the industry functions. Yeah. One of the things I've learned when I, when I first got appointed to the board of Metro about nine years ago, you know, I knew even far less about, certainly about railroads than any, almost anything else. People said, well, the one thing to keep in mind is that you're going into a 200 year old industry. And what they were really saying is that they do things the way they've been doing them. <laughs> and uh, change often comes slowly. So I think that's part, at least true and significant part, not entirely true. There are changes, but uh, whether people but both shippers and railroads will adapt to any kind of new regime on reciprocal switching is going to have to wait and see what kind of rule we issue, if any. Yeah. Uh, one of the longer term expected changes within the rail industry is eventually to, to see more autonomous power, uh, which could reduce the requirement for crews and, and things of that sort. Uh, does the STB have any involvement uh, in any of those things? I know obviously the FRA does. Well, it's primarily a safety issue. No one has ever come and asked us to approve, you know, a self-guided railroad yet, uh, I suppose. So I haven't thought about whether our regulatory authority would extend to it. I will say this about autonomous railroads. I think we're a long, my own sense is that we're a long way off. You know, the Australian rail regulators were in DC a while back and we got a chance to meet with them. So I asked them about their autonomous railroad and it's there, it's quite limited. It goes about 240 miles across an extraordinarily sparsely populated territory. And it goes directly from a mine to a port and back doesn't really do anything else. It has an uninterrupted uh, route as I understood it. Um, so if you think about how that might be in, uh, utilized in the United States, I don't know that there are too many routes even across the vast West that you could actually just launch a train with nobody on it and soon it's gonna end up where it's supposed to. It does seem to work in Australia on this one very limited path, but that's kind of a rarefied situation. So uh, I don't think we'll see it, Dennis, while you and I are on the planet. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a ways away for sure. Um, well, I, I don't want to take too much more time here. It's it's been really good to chat once again. Um, I'll, I'll ask you two final questions, let's assume that you are sitting in front of an audience of only carriers. Uh, what would your word be to the railroad carrier group? Uh, well, I do appear in such groups. And so I don't, you don't have to make the assumption. I'll tell you what I 
always say to carriers, and that is you are an essential part of our economy. We couldn't have the United States without you. And we could be a far more robust economy if you would do more and do better. And we want you to do more and do better. So, uh, and to keep in mind that like it or not, one of Congress's mandates to the board and to you is that the public interest has to be taken into account. It's not just profits and shareholders. And so serve the public interest and get rich at the same time. Don't just get rich at the public interest expense. Yeah. And speaking of the public then, uh, so now we have a, a shipper audience. What's your word for the shippers? We're doing the best we can. <laughs> well, a very powerful industry that we're trying to motivate to do a better job serving the shippers. And listen, shippers can, you know, can help. They can be better organized. They can work with railroads to facilitate the service they get. And my impression is that shippers are, would, are, are happy to do that. They want to do that. It helps their business. Um, the one thing that is becoming clearer to me, Dennis, and maybe this is a message to shippers, uh, increasingly, I have the perception that there's too much complacency on both the shippers and railroads sides in, in what we expect of our national rail network. Uh, I think that even for industries, and I've talked to some who could increase their own productivity, their own output, their own profits, if they could get more and better rail service. They've come to accept the railroads with the service that's being provided to them. And they, they adjust their manufacturing capacity accordingly and their output. Um, and I don't blame them. They've got businesses to run. They're not in the business of going out and, and crusading. But I think for those industries who, who could improve their own output and productivity, I'd like to see them be a little more aggressive and agitating with the railroads to do more. Um, and I, I've talked to some industries and I've asked if you had done unlimited rail service or more service than you have, could you increase output? And they say, yes. Uh, we had a report last summer uh, in one of our uh, advisory committee meetings, RETAC, the Rail Energy Advisory Committee meeting, from the ethanol industry that over this past year, uh, various ethanol producers literally had days where their plants were shut down. I think one company had 39 separate days where they literally shut down production because they couldn't get a train of empties to put the ethanol in, you know, it was in their tanks and they couldn't empty their tanks. So they had to turn off the production lines. And they do complain, they talk to us about it, but I, I think as, a, as an interest group, shippers of all kinds should be, not be complacent and say, okay, well, we'll live with, with that's the only service we can get. So that's how we'll gear up our output. They should be pressing for more and better service because that helps all of us. It helps the economy. More output would help put you know, lower inflation. Uh, so we're all in this together. Um, but 
I don't feel as though shippers are generally responsible for their own getting poor service. That's not, we're not blaming the victims there. Yeah. Well, that I think is a wrap. Um, again, want to thank uh, Chairman Marty Oberman with the Surface Transportation Board for taking time out here to share a, kind of a wrap up of 2022, how things are looking, where things are heading. A busy, busy year, busy time for the Surface Transportation Board and uh, shared a lot of good things. So I'll just say uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And, uh, and the same to you, Dennis, and to all of the people listening to this program. Thanks you for you and your family. Thanks. See you all next year. Uh, well, everyone, uh, uh, welcome. Uh, this is the uh, NEARS uh, Holiday Podcast. I'm Jason Seidel, Cowan Senior Transportation Analyst. Uh, and with me today, uh, thrilled uh, to have Ken Kellaway from Road One and Matt Menner uh, from Uber Freight to discuss uh, the uh, supply chain market from a trucking uh, port as well as a drayage side. So why don't I kick everything off here? Um, there's been a, a lot of back and forth with the supply chain, especially around the ports. Um, Ken, uh, talk a little bit about how 22 started and really how 22 is ending uh, in terms of congestion at the ports. Yeah, well, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me again. As always, appreciate it. Thanks, John. The, um, you know, I look, 22 started chaotic, to say the least. Right? A lot of challenges in the market, of course. Uh, still a lot of congestion at all the ports. Uh, and as I think everybody is aware by now, the ports weren't necessarily to blame for the congestion. A lot of it ended up at the distribution center level where, you know, we just couldn't get enough labor in the distribution centers uh, in order to accommodate the big inbound volumes of freight coming in. So, you know, you had a situation where the whole supply chain backed up from the distribution centers all the way back. And, you know, what ended up happening is the ports got choked, of course. They couldn't discharge vessels fast enough because the equipment wasn't leaving the ports quick enough going to inland locations. So we still had challenges there. Uh, that resulted in chassis challenges all around the country where there weren't enough chassis available because they were at destination waiting to be delivered, sitting under containers. Uh, so there were a lot of stress points, you know, couldn't get equipment off the port, delayed times at the port, lack of chassis availability, uh, lack of warehouse space to bring the freight into became a big challenge because inventory was building up so quickly because so many people pre-ordered. So very chaotic the first half of the year. Uh, and it really lasted until we're just starting to now start to see things settle down. Uh, we've seen the volume reductions on new inbound orders, especially into the West Coast. Uh, we've seen a pretty sharp drop off uh, on orders coming out of Asia into the West Coast as people have re been able to re-inventory as A, the market's cooled down a little bit as everybody's aware, uh, and B, they pulled early. You know, everybody wanted to bring freight in early before holiday season because they didn't want to miss ads like they had years prior. So people pulled early. So peak for us was really more June, July, August. Uh, we saw it then and started to come down. So uh, things have certainly settled down on the West Coast. Uh, volumes have declined. So that's allowed people to get caught up and get fluidity improved again. Uh, you know, we're seeing that in LA. I mean, in New York, New Jersey as well. Starting to settle down now, not back to 2019 levels and not back to the fluidity we'd like to see yet. Uh, and they've had chassis problems. They had capacity issues where we had to discharge empties, but starting to settle down. Uh, PMWs calmed way down as well because volumes are declining there. But the areas that we're still seeing a lot of activity, still Savannah in the Southeast, still busy, uh, not congested to the point of inefficient, but still busy, still active, uh, but that's starting to settle down a little bit. 
Uh, the Gulf region is still the busiest for us. Uh, Houston's still very, very busy down in that market. Uh, and we don't see that slowing down. Uh, it'll come down a little bit. But, you know, we think a lot of this is the result of a realignment of the supply chain network. You know, more and more companies have moved east into the Gulf, uh, whether it's e-commerce, shifting of supply chain requirements, we need more DCs. Uh, reacting to growth markets like Texas and the Southeast, where population growth is rapid, uh, expansion of distribution centers to those markets as well. So we don't think we're going to see a big slowdown in the Southeast and the uh, and the Gulf ports, uh, but certainly fluidity is improving as the comes down. Yeah, we, we, we put out, a, we published a report uh, recently, a big supply chain report, where uh, we did a proprietary survey in there and found that, you know, 10 plus percent of that freight that shifted away from the West Coast, whether it went to the East or the Gulf or wherever, is, is actually going to remain there. It's not going to, it's not going to flow back. Would you agree with that number? Do you think that's high or do you think that's low? No, no, I think it's accurate. And I think if anything, it even could be low, candidly. You know, if you look at what we've done as a company, I think what we're doing is reflective of the industry is we've built over three and a half million square feet of transload capacity in the past 24 months uh, from New York all the way down to Houston uh, because people are realigning. They want to go into a transloading mode where you bring containers in, you're offloading them so you can turn them quicker, getting back to the port faster, terminate the chassis in the in the international boxes where your per diem and demerge is extremely high. Now, 300 all is a container per day, much more efficient to get them into a transload facility, unload them and domesticate that in the 53 foot equipment over the road. So, you know, we're seeing that trend. And if you look at the 10 year statistics, at least you continue to see that shift. You know, where the West Coast had, you know, on around 22% of your overall market, now it's ticking back up to over 37 to 38 plus percent. Uh, and add another percentage into the Gulf region, of course, you know, you're starting to see a pretty good balance here uh, of a shift from the West to the East where, you know, you've got, you know, 40 plus percent now in the Gulf and East Coast coming. And, you know, I think there's some other things that are impacting that as well, Jason, that I'm sure Matthew will talk about, but we're seeing a production shift from China to Southeast Asia and a lot of commodities, apparel, footwear. Uh, we're seeing a lot of KD furniture. We do a lot of furniture. We're seeing that into Vietnam. Uh, we're seeing production in India and places like that. So that changes trade route patterns, right? Instead of all of it coming into West Coast or even through the Panama, especially now that the East Coast ports are big ship ready. These ports in the East Coast have invested billions of dollars making sure they can accommodate 17, 18, 20,000 TEU vessels that they couldn't four and five years ago. They've got the depth, they've got the vertical clearance, they've got the berth capacity now. So they can take the big ships that are coming through the Suez now. So you know, that's one of the other things that's driving this trade pattern changes. Country of origin, big ship, ship economics in the uh, East Coast. We think it's here to stay. And cost, you know, our cost per square foot. And these new markets is a third of what it is out in the West. Wow, a third. Jeez, that's, that's yeah. low. Um, you know, I, I, I failed to uh, uh, let everyone know that John Myers from DM Bowman also is with us. And John, John's my colleague at NIR, so I, I always forget that he's actually on this panel uh, and I'm then discussing leads. So, John, sorry about that. Um, let, let's shift over a little bit um, and, and talk uh, about the truckload market. Um, you know, Matt and, and John, you guys are, are both in it. John, you're a carrier. Matt, you're a 3PL. Um, so, John, why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, what you've seen sort of throughout 22 and, and, and where you think we are right now in the marketplace and that big supply demand mix, because you know what, I know you don't play a lot in it, but man, that spot market continues to, to be under pressure here. Yeah, and <clears throat> I agree, you know, 
as a carrier, we don't really play in the spot market. Less than 1% of our business is in the spot market. And the challenge is, and you know, with Matt on the line here, there's three PLs that you do business with that are great. You know, Matt's companies never come to us and said, oh, the spot market's down. Now we want you to reduce your rates. However, others have. And the challenge with that is, since we don't play in the spot market, I never went to a 3PL and said, I need more money because, you know, the going great is now three times what I quote at you. You know, we did do price increases throughout the entire pandemic. We did do them through 20, only because of driver pay and other factors, equipment costs, et cetera. So there are reasonable price increases. There was no 10%, 30%, 100% price increases for us because that's not the game we play. But now we're starting to see that come around where I've been approached by my asset-based customers saying, hey, brokers are coming at us right now and offering us ridiculous rates. We're turning them away because you stuck by us and you gave us capacity. Are you going to be able to continue to give us capacity, right? And that commitment means a lot to most asset carriers. But again, on the 3PL side, we've seen it. And they've come to us, we've asked them, I decline to reduce the prices. Um, not saying they're getting a price increase, you know, prices is going to hold a lot more steady, I think, at least going through this half of next year. But with that being said, what we've seen is I think most asset carriers held to their pricing as well. So they went out for a first round of bid, then they went for the second round, then they went for the third round, and then they had a call saying, hey, um, I'm really under pressure to get some reduced prices. So they go to the fourth round. And I don't think a lot of them are seeing that on the asset side. What I do think they're seeing is a lot of the owner operators now that do not have the luxury of the freight that they had out there are coming around, taking some lower rates and picking up some of that freight. So I think you're gonna see that. It's tough for those guys right now because they overpaid for their equipment. A lot of that excess capacity that was floating around because, you know, our tender acceptance at best during a pandemic was probably 60% because there's just so much freight out there on the lanes. Now, as we're closer to that 100% model, a lot of that has dried up for those carriers. And that's not a good thing either because, you know, that affects the market as a whole. So I think you're going to see some normalization in pricing going for at least the first half of next year. And then I guess we're going to see where we go, right? We're always, anymore, we're always just one variant away from <laughs> catastrophe. One, one big snowstorm away. <laughs> one, um, one something. <laughs> so, you know, is it normal? I don't think we're ever getting back to, you know, 2017, 2019, 2018 was an outlier, but I think we'll normalize at some point in time, but it's still going to be a struggle. We're still short drivers. We're still short on equipment. None of that's going away anytime soon. Well, it, it's interesting because, you know, Ken brought up chassis still being an issue. Yeah, talk about uh, equipment because I've heard from a lot of carriers this year, and especially like all the massive ones that I cover, whether it's Knight or Schneider or Warner. I mean, they're basically throwing money at the OEMs, you know, please give us trucks. And, and, and they haven't been able to get trucks. What are you seeing right now from your OEMs? And then also talk a little bit on the trailer side, because you guys are one of the largest trailer lessors in the country. So we're still not getting that delivery. You know, last year we ordered 5,000, we got 300. This is trailers. This is trailers. Um, really? <laughs> it's, 
you know, that's, that, so, that's a low that's a low percentage hit ratio yeah we, we we just we just started doing work with one of the major manufacturers so we had the opportunity to go tour one of their facilities and they and the way in which they talked about their order book was would be uh it would be like proud papa language right you know what i mean that yeah. they, you know for the foreseeable future we're uh we're oversold right which is i guess a nice situation being go ahead sorry john no 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 man and, and, you know, that's exactly what they're out there pushing because yeah. some of the smaller carriers that had orders in obviously may have canceled them but they're being that is being consumed really quickly by everybody else that's been waiting for them so you know depending who you talk to and which one you're going to see better delivery in 2023 but mostly 2024 from the truck manufacturers <laughs> i think you're seeing it improving, but at the same time, you know, we've had this conversation on one of your calls in the past. You know, we were originally supposed to have our first electric truck in by the end of the year. Now I think we're looking at sometime around March. So, you know, things are still behind. It's is it as bad as it was? Probably not. And again, you still have supply chain issues. I really hate that word anymore, but it's you know still prevalent out there. You have lockdowns in China, which you know keeps going into the chip manufacturers. So you still hear that, and it's a, you know, it's a waiting game. You, like like I said, I don't. We're we're normalizing, but we're not there yet. Okay, and and on on the used equipment side, what are you seeing on the truck side? What are you seeing on the trailer side? Um, so obviously the prices have come down a lot on the used equipment, and. In trucks are sitting longer, obviously, you're not getting the, you know, big influx of owner operators that you had. But at the same time, you're still not getting your replacement equipment in. So there's, you know, I, I think from two standpoints, one, trucking companies are still using their used vehicles as parts for their new vehicles because it's necessary. And on the trailer side, yeah, that truck and trailer side, your cycle's longer, right? Because yeah, we would have loved to get rid of a hundred old trailers out of the system last year, but you could, you can't, you just can't. And when it comes to, you know, leasing you a trailer, I'm still on a backlog. I mean, you could call me today and ask me for one, I'll tell you no. You could ask me for a hundred, I'll tell you never going to happen. And, it, you, you know, and it's crazy. So, like, you know, I have customers that reached out for a hundred of them two years ago, and I might have them up to four trailers right now. So it makes no sense, right? It just makes no sense. Wow. Um, well, let's talk uh, the 3PL perspective with uh, with Uber Freight. Matt, and you guys, obviously, with the uh, with Uber purchasing, uh, Transplace have a, a much more much more large service offering here for your customers. You know, and you tend or Transplace to tend to serve the larger customers, right? So. You know, talk about what you're seeing in the marketplace for sort of drive NTL, and then I'd like to dive into sort of, you know, how your customers are viewing 2023 and what their main concerns and planning are. Yeah. Um, thanks again, Jason. It's always a pleasure to join this event. The um, So uh, Uber Freight now is a combination of the former digital freight brokerage business of Uber and the legacy transplace business that came together in October of 21 and, you know, day one of kind of NUCO, if you will, the new Uber Freight was uh, this past October, right? So, you know, we in total now have uh, about a $17 billion freight network that we operate on behalf of about 360 unique shippers that range in transportation spend from a million and a half dollars in controllable to $700 million in controllable. Um, 
and uh, and then you know the complementary aspects of the business without question remain uh, about a three billion dollar plus gross line truck broker uh, intermodal marketing company formerly known as Celtic that will do three hundred thousand plus rail you know three hundred thousand plus lifts this year on behalf of with using uh, rail provided equipment. And then a very strong and vibrant um, cross-border business, predominantly between the United States, Mexico, and uh, back and forth. So um, focused on customs brokerage as well as warehousing, um, transloading, so on and so forth. Um, so our overall, our customers across our five core verticals include consumer packaged goods, food, bev, industri diversified industrial manufacturing, chemicals, uh, and associated industries, um, and then retail, uh, inbound supply chains for QSR, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, across the board, everyone is off. Um, you know, should be no surprise there as we you know look at macroeconomic trends. Um, you know, I, I think not off as far as everyone would have originally thought six months ago when they were making the call using the R word at that point. Um, I think we have we're we are uh, buoyed a bit by what we seem to be a, a, a slightly faster recovery, I think, than we were originally expected. But volumes are down. Um, you know, the uh, the flight quality is on, right? So the, you know, the spot market has all but dried up, right? Um, Jason, you're, you guys follow that closely as well as everyone else, right? So, uh, and everyone's trying to work their way back into a routing guide. John, you've already been there, right? So you're nice and warm at home, right? You know what I mean? You got a lot of other people that are bum rushing the door trying to get into those things because they were, uh, they were happy to hang out in the spot and make money at this point, right? Uh, and I think the smart shippers, um, Many of which we have the fortune to call our customers, right? Are uh, are taking full advantage of uh, of a more favorable market, trying to work the right carriers into the routing guide and you know and develop relationships. You know, we're still we're still running bids, we're still seeing reduction in freight expense, right? And I'm talking contract, and then I'm also talking about um, strategies that we're specifically employing as. As, as Uber Freight to uh, look at low volume, non-repetitive moves, and how do we how do we put our network together in a seventeen billion dollar buy and uh, and and affect positively affect that shipper with a solution that might not look like certainty of contracted rate, but certainly looks nowhere as nowhere near as painful as a as a bare spot rate at this point, or the, certainly the trailing spot rates as we think about it. So we're doing all sorts of interesting stuff to try and uh, aggregate that volume and then apply our leverage to that volume to provide the shipper in a 100% transparent cost known, truck rate known, margin known uh, commercial environment in order to ensure you know that customer ends up with a better price position than they had previously, right? So they got to. There's got to be a reason that they partner with us, right? So, uh, but we are. I think we are cautiously optimistic that um, 23 will remain a uh, relatively neutral freight environment, right? So um, where the there'll be a reset back from the high water mark. Um, we're, again, we're running bids and we're seeing we're seeing historic we're seeing returns to historic spreads between. The lowest cost assignment of trucks to the network versus the achieved, right? The engineered outcome, if you will, the smart one that makes sense that takes into consideration high quality carriers and favors incumbency and the ability to drop and all that other stuff that we talk about, the associated importance of that. Um, so we're starting to see that 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 long trend line of behavior is now returning after a really kind of a, a abrupt dip, if you will, for the last you know 24 months or so. So. I think we're 
cautiously optimistic around 23 and uh, and, ex and expect that this remain, again, barring all the things we were joking about before, you know, another another variant, uh, a polar vortex or series of, you know, a, a, a strike in some way, shape or form, right? The, unfortunately, the variables are almost too uh, incalculable these days, right? You know what I mean? Like, you know, it only takes, I was joking with somebody the other day that that like this, the equilibrium of our industry kind of, it's like a, it's like a pin balancing on like a mouse's nail. You know what I mean? It doesn't take much to knock it off of, uh, off of its balance at that point. Right. And I would argue it probably has only become more fragile as time's gone by, given all these other things. And John, to your point, like all of the fundamental things that challenge the North American truckload marketplace in no way, shape or form have changed. Right. You know what I mean? Driver wage, you know, challenge of the occupation, right? Government regulation in order to minimize the inflow of of qualified, capable 18 and 19 year olds that are looking for a job, right? That aren't college material, right? You know what I mean? Or for that matter, maybe our college material and just don't want to take on $300,000 worth of debt, right? So there's, there's all sorts of things, all those negatives, you know, all those challenges still remain in full effect, right? No, none of those from, from certainly our vantage point have been meaningfully addressed at this point. So. I, I'd love to go to the driver's market, but I wanna, I wanna stay on point with some of the comments that you made. Yeah, have you seen a shift in terms of how the shippers are, are planning to spread their business between contract and, and let's just say what you were describing as maybe a pseudo spot exposure? Yeah, yeah it was funny. I was talking to a, a shipper that we're in the process of onboarding as a, a 3PL customer and they ship uh, they ship a expensive, exp expensive, valuable and instantaneously fensible product. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and I was talking to their, I was talking to their uh, head of procurement and he's like, Matt, well, but just, why wouldn't I like just spot bid every load? You know what I mean? Like, look, like, look at this market, you know? And again, he's a super good guy, but he's not, he's not a trans guy by any stretch of the imagination. Like, I'm like, you know, I will not mention his name, but, but uh, I said, listen, you, you, you can't, when, when it starts to turn, it's like it's trying it's like a grand central station trying to go through one roundabout door you know what i mean at rush hour like you're you're not all able to go and get into the routing guide at that point right you and everyone else and everyone else in front of you and these guys are you know 20 million dollar buy everyone else in front of you that has more buy right is going to apply that buy in order to ensure that they've shored up their position with that carrier on that lane for those trucks at that rate you know what i mean so like you just can't pivot that well. Matt Harding with uh, with our organization says it very well. You know what I mean? Like you know the the market can change. The 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 the, the carriers, John. To your point, you guys can't go. You know, just manifest. You know, trucks, drivers, and trailers. You know what I mean? Because the market has now gone up by twenty points in the last month, right? You just you can't move that fast in, right? But the market certainly can change that fast out, right? So I said to him, you 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 need this, you know, you need this gentle balance where it's you know seventy percent committed and thirty percent just makes sense to float because you don't you it's it's not it's not of interest to a carrier to make a commitment. If they make a commitment, it's going to be an inflated commitment because that load might show up once every six weeks, right? And then they got a plan for it at that point, right? So they've got to figure out how to price it, right? So so it's, I think that we'll continue to see, we still think that the smart strategy is, you know, bid consistently, stay marked to market, you know, in, you know, irrespective of cycle, right? And then apply, 
these other creative solutions to address that low volume trailing 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 lane freight freight that you know that that you know that that carriers will haul under the right circumstances with the right rate right in some way shape or form in a fashion and we think that that's part of the value unlock of a 3pl now you know we talk about big numbers they don't mean anything unless we put that freight and that capacity that's native to the network to you to work for that shipper in a way in which they can actually count the savings right it can't just be this just trust me i'm going to really do a better job than you done done yourself you got to show them the math at that point and we think that that transparency is a point of differentiation. It's been core our model since we came into existence 30 years ago as Transplace, right? So you would, um, you know, it remains kind of a core tenant to us as we think about our business. That's a great answer. I appreciate that. Now, I, I want to jump a little bit to the rail side since, you know, NEARS is a railroad-facing organization. Um, let's face it, the rails, the class ones, have had their challenges this year. Yeah. Uh, with the service levels that has been absolutely all over the press uh, they continue uh, to, to be sort of underwhelming if you will in service um, I guess talk about um, uh, for for Matt and Ken talk about how that has impacted uh, your business what are the class ones telling you uh, in terms of what to expect in service levels for 21 and fluidity uh, and then you know like, you know Ken you can come at it from uh, a drainage standpoint and Matt I guess you can come at it from an intermodal standpoint yeah. Ken, you want to start? Yeah, I can start. I mean, look, I think there's been a lot of, you know, unpredictability lately, of course, <laughs> in the rail strike that now has been, appears to be resolved, thank God. I think that was very important for not only the uh, transportation sector, but certainly important for the country as a whole. It could have been catastrophic for us when you're in a situation where we've got a volatile economy right now. So very, very important that was resolved, which was good news. So, you know, I think what we're paying the short-term penalty for is we're, we're seeing a big reduction of volumes off the rail right now. I think part of that is because people just hedged uh, and they didn't put a lot of volume on, uh, you know, onto the system for a while to make sure that this wasn't an issue last Friday, I guess, December 9th, whenever it could have been a major issue. So part of it was a hedging issue. Part of it's a volume reduction. So, you know, when you look at our Midwest operations today, Chicago, we're probably seeing the smaller years. Seeing a lot of domestic intermodal uh, customers of ours are stacking equipment now uh, because they're off hiring a lot of the assets, 53 foot boxes and stuff. Uh, you know, do we think that'll restore as this thing settles? Uh, we do. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> Times we see a transload based off the West Coast as well. We see a lot of transload uh, activity off the West Coast that converts into 53-foot rail boxes coming east and into the Midwest. You know, that volume has settled down, as we know, because the West Coast imports have settled down. So we're actually seeing some of that shift to the east where we're transloading and putting on the eastern railroads now going up into the Midwest. Part of it's just a reduction in overall volumes because the market settled. Part of it's a reaction to pending strike, which has passed us now. Uh, we are also seeing a little bit of slowdown across border. We do a lot of automotive space, uh, and that's all coming from to and from Mexico into uh, the Midwest markets, feeding into the automotive sector. We're seeing a little bit of slowdown there as well. Again, part of it, I think, due to a pending strike. That so, you know, we're kind of waiting to see where volumes are going to go right now. Um, you know, the intact 40-foot boxes have slowed down as well in the Midwest, again, partly because of the slowdown in consumer goods coming in from Asia off the West Coast. Um, you know, we're seeing it there. But, you know, we're a very diversified carrier. So, you know, I call it GDSM, General Department Store Merchandise, for us, we're seeing the biggest impact in the slowdown short term. But that's only 20, 25% of our business. You know, the remainder of our business is we do a lot in the high-tech space, believe it or not, uh, moving parts and components, 
uh, for building server farms, data warehouses, and that's very busy. That hasn't slowed down. Uh, they're not participating in recessions. They're going to build more and more data warehouses because the migration is going there uh, as people convert off their own asset-based servers and stuff. Uh, we're seeing a lot in the automotive space, believe it or not, even though I know the journal came out with an article this weekend saying automotive was slowing down a little bit. There's such a backlog because of the supply chain challenges that we think those bills are going to keep going for a while. And we're also seeing a big conversion to electric vehicles. Uh, and we're participating with a lot of those folks where we're seeing a lot of activity still no slowdown in sight uh you know whether it's any of the big three uh and we're also dealing with uh, electric vehicle companies that you're very aware of that uh, continue to be very expand. so it's really a mixed bag right now jason where we're seeing it but certainly a slowdown in the midwest right now on big box and small box uh we think partially because of the strike issues uh, and hoping it comes back but, you know, our big retail clients that we are dealing with, our 25 plus percent retail clients are saying they expect to see this softness for the next two or three months as inventory burns off that they pulled in early uh, and they get rid of some of the, you know, out of fashion product that they would want to burn off right now through discounting and, and pushing it to the discount retailers. Uh, and even our discount retail clients, some of the big national guys are saying they're buying domestic instead of importing because they can buy cheap right now from domestic vendors that have excess inventory whether it's footwear or apparel or, or, or consumer goods. So, but they all anticipate that inventories will start resetting again post uh, Chinese New Year, it's, um, which is good. So, you know, I don't see this thing going on long-term into the third and fourth quarters of next year. I know some people do, but we're not hearing it from our customers. You know, they're not anticipating up years, but they're anticipating pretty consistent years with, with what we've seen, uh, what you get taxes for. And in, and in terms of dealing with any of the rail congestion, uh, you know, whether, whether it's at some of their yards or whether whether it's at some of the gates, you know, what are you seeing there now and what are the railroads telling you? Well, the congestion is still there right now, okay. mostly because the inbound distribution center still can't handle a lot of it. There's so much excess inventory. We're still dealing. We run warehouses all around the United States. I was just on a call with a group out of Europe uh, that's one of the largest retailers in the country for furniture. Uh, and we're setting up warehouses all around the U.S. for them as we speak today. Still pop up warehouses everywhere because they don't have anywhere to go with the inventory fast enough. Partly because consumer sales have slowed down. But again, a lot of it's because of the big push everybody made to bring inventory into the system. So they didn't get caught without inventory. You know, the just in case concept versus just in time. So I think it's a balance of both right now. Um, so, you know, it's causing congestion in the real network still. Uh, Probably because they can't get the loads off the ramps fast enough, and the empties are starting to pile up now because they don't need them back in the West Coast because the lines are slowing down. So, you know, we still have some challenges. Is it getting better? It's getting better because uh, it was disastrous six months ago. I mean, we had we were picking up loads that were being shuttled off the ramps in the Midwest into uh, satellite facilities uh, and going to the ground, and we're waiting for three and four picks to get a box that we need, and you, you're there forever. So. It's certainly getting better, no question about it. But uh, the challenges aren't all the rails fault. The challenges are partly just because the network doesn't have the place to put the equipment right now and offload it. I mean, in warehouse vacancy rates are less than 3% in a lot of markets. In the Southeast right now, it's than 1.72% in hot markets like Savannah. So as fast as we can open a building, we just opened up another five, 450,000, 480,000, excuse me, in Houston. We moved in last week. The building is going to be full by next week. It's, uh, it's that fast. And some of it's new customers. It's <laughs> some of it's new customers that are calling us. They want to get the boxes out of per diem and out of demerge because it's costing them a fortune. They need all the so that. That's what's causing still a lot of the stress. 
even the volumes are coming down. Interesting. Yeah, it's 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 it sounds like sort of my, my golf game. I probably probably shoot about one one. <laughs> if I got out there a little bit more, I'll probably easily get down about 110, but that number is still not good. <laughs> Improved, but still not good. Gotcha. Um, well, what are you seeing from the rail side? You know, you, you mentioned Celtic and their, and their big exposure, obviously, to the intermodal market. You know, what what are the people there telling you? Yeah, so um, I will probably just scratch the surface here, right? So David Marsh, who leads intermodal for us, has done a phenomenal, he and his team have done a phenomenal job, I think, navigating arguably probably one of the most challenging 12-month periods that we've had in the industry in the last decade, maybe more. Um, they've consistently, you know, performed well. Volumes are up. You know, overall performance has been great at that business, although we are now starting to see, you know, volumes volumes start to list. I mean, I think to what Ken said in terms of just overall, and many of our customers are shared customers in terms of, you know, we're moving we're moving retail product for retailers and, uh, and the like. So, so I think that's part of it. We've seen the rails uh, performance incrementally improve over time. It seems as though, um, you know, it's there. There's there are signs of life, and that we might be heading back in a positive direction here, right? But certainly, it lists far from what was expect. You know, what we had grown accustomed to uh, earlier in the year, right? Um, I we we do a we consistently do uh, an analysis to look at mode conversion when a customer comes to us or a prospect comes to us and says. You know, hey, we'd like to partner with you for your freight management capabilities, and um, it's I, I I I literally had to like check, like I thought my eyes were wrong when I saw some of these transits where you know, I mean, where you would have thought that's a five or a six day lane all day long, and now it's nine, eleven, fourteen days, and it's like, and we we started to we actually started to trim the analysis and said, and I said if it's if it's plus three or four days over truck single driver, like don't even put it in there because nobody's going to consider that, especially given the environment that we're operating in at this point. So, so we remain bullish on uh, the future prospects of intermodal, but the, you know, we are, we are seeing, we are seeing incremental improvement for the second half of the year versus the first half of the year. But as I said, our team just did a great job of managing through an exceptionally challenging time at this point. So. And Matt, this is going to be a question that's going to sort of touch on intermodal, but but sort of broader for the rest of your customer base. How, how important are ESG considerations when they're when they're coming up for new bids right now? Yeah, increasingly, uh, and Uber has a, a very aggressive platform with respect to um, that. Uh, we have a we have an entire there's a functional aspect within the organization that is specifically focused on. On ESG and uh, and understanding our you know our, the footprint uh, current footprint current emissions you know and how we ultimately improve it our uh, our engineering team has gone about uh, under under Matt Harding's direction and leadership you know actually constructing a set of models that we have a high degree of confidence or at least appropriately representing you know the implications of these of these designs right and uh, and more and more of our customers. It used to be, I can think of one for years that always was like, you know, that's really important to us. And they were like one out of like hundreds, right? You know what I mean? It is it is becoming a much more consistent request or or conversation or, hey, if you could help us with that, that's great. It's important to us now, right? So it's not... Um, it's it is moving towards the mainstream at this point, right? It's not every conversation and it's not, you know, it's not like every shipper says what's your fuel management strategy, you know, that's a mainstream conversation, right? Like, but it's, 
it is, I mean, the, the level of energy and frequency that's occurring now over the course of the last two years, three years is, is marked at least from uh, my perspective. So you think that's going to get to be mainstream in the, in, in the coming few I, years? I, I don't, I don't know how it won't. Right. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, you know, like, you know, they're, you know, they, you know, the government, right. The global society, government, governments, plural. Right. And then certainly, uh, I mean, you know, Jason, it's affecting your guys world, right. We've got customers that are owned by, holding companies, financing companies, and they're saying like, this will, this will negatively affect my ability to, to raise capital, right. You know, or raise, raise competitively priced capital. Right. So, so yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's on, it's on the verge. Go ahead, Kenny. Yeah, I, no, I think you're right on Matt. So we're seeing the same thing. We've got private equity sponsors that are our partners in the business. And uh, certainly, you know, we're getting more and more questions about it time i think in our intermodal logistics space we're way in front of the competition you know we've already converted all our transload facilities are all electric forklift trucks and we're talking 40 50 80 forklift trucks per transload facility wow. we've put all electric yard trucks so we're using orange as our electric yard truck provider for all of our dedicated actually in our oakland facility we just put solar panels on the roof uh, and we have an actual locomotive. John will be happy to hear. We actually have a locomotive on site and we do our own yard switching. So we just spent a half a million dollars bringing an electric yard switcher, which is charged off the solar coming off of the roof. Cool. Uh, we've been the first ones to test electric vehicles in the East Coast ports. So we started with Nikolai. Uh, we're working through some issues there with them, but uh, we've got Tesla coming and Volvo coming as well. So we're already converting some routes uh, to electric vehicles. Uh, and we're even doing stuff, as you all know, I'm an investor in a water business. We're actually converting all of our distribution centers to water purification systems. No plastic bottles allowed in our buildings going forward. Uh, and this is a reaction to most of our customers are Fortune 500, like Matthews are. It's um, And this is a reaction to their demands and requirements and, you know, being a good corporate citizen. But, you know, all of our PowerPoints, all of our decks now have ESG slides in it. It's getting a lot of attention. Uh, and people have to get focused on a lot of our customers have divisions that are ESG based now where, you know, they have leadership focused on sustainability. Uh, and so we think it's, it's gaining a lot of traction very rapidly and it has to, it's the right thing to do. Uh, and uh, we're taking action. Yeah. Same, same thing with Cowan here. I mean, guys, we, you know, a couple, a couple of years back, maybe a year and a half ago, we teamed up and uh, with, with sort of an ESG company to give scores to uh, almost all of our covered companies. When you see a counter report, there's an ESG score on it as well. And, you know, when you look at assets in our management, that's, that's been a rapidly growing uh, portion uh, of, of the business. It, you know, years, you know, years back, it used to be just out of Europe and now it's sort of everywhere. So that's, that's a big deal on our end too. Uh, I look, I know we're going a little bit over time here, but I, I wanted to touch on two more things really quickly. Um, it Ken and John, you both brought up the driver side. Talk about driver availability and what you see for driver pay in 23. Yeah. Go ahead, John. Start, and I'll jump in if you'd like. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's not going down. Let's put it that way. Um, we're going to have to, st <laughs> you know, stay competitive. It has to be an industry that people want to be a part of and can make a living wage in. You know, one thing that's changed within my company, we're all going out now personally to driver recruiting schools. And we're having that conversation with people entering the driving force, partially to listen to what they want, but also to see, you know, mindset wise, what do they want to do? Because one thing we see changing, everybody wants to be not regional, they want to be short haul, right? So 
that length of haul is getting shorter and shorter. The pandemic taught us there's a lot more DCs closer together. And that's really been key to recruiting, but also key to, you know, retaining drivers. They want to be home every night. They don't want to be home just on the weekend or every other weekend. And we've been incredibly fortunate in the Southeast with the recruiting. Um, we're bringing drivers in. We're able to retain those drivers. The Mid-Atlantic is still the biggest challenge for us because there's probably the most competition there. But, you know, it's at one point in time, it was, you know, you try to sell them on the equipment, you try to sell them on this, or, you know, I, I've heard companies that were pushing the NFL package, right? That's what drivers, it's not really what drivers want. Drivers want a predictable income. They want to be able to make a living wage. They want to be able to have family time. And, you know, when I talk to these drivers, it's not what you think when you think of, you know, somebody entering the force. When I go to these schools, it's a broad age, age range. The last one I did, youngest was 18. The oldest was 66. And when you ask them what they want, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, you know, the 18 year old is gonna have challenge because they has to find a company that's gonna wanna be part of that pilot program. We are part of that pilot program in the Mid-Atlantic, but not in the South yet. And, you know, our biggest need and biggest challenge is team drivers. It's almost impossible to find somebody that wants to team up these days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's just- It's always been a tough market, market though, right? Team's it, always been tough. It's it's always been a bigger challenge, but, you know, when I first started with this company, we had a ton of teams and very little turnover in those teams. Now our team drivers are making six figures a piece and we still can't retain them. It's a challenge because it's not meeting that work-life balance, which I think is key to retaining drivers these days. You know, it's never going to be a 40-hour week. It's never going to be a nine-to-five job. But how, how conducive could you make it to having a home life, a family life, holidays, baseball games, course, concerts? You, you know, you have to take all that into account because, uh, again, things changed drastically in the past couple of years. And now you're not only competing for drivers with, you know, the typical driver mindset, but, you know, this goes to, you know, Matt, Matt now works for Uber. And the last time I tried to get an Uber it, from Charlotte, which is a major city, my wait time was an hour. Last night, I got in from Cincinnati, 26 minutes for me to get an Uber at Newark Airport. Yeah, and one, one finally did show up because I had two canceled. I asked him why. You're out delivering freight. Well, hey, I, have I, have I have nothing to do with the ride side. Nah. <laughs> that may be well, there. You need a truck. Uber eats yes, ride no. So if you know, if you want a cheeseburger, call Matt. <laughs> but but you know, these the same workforce has packages in their trunk for Amazon, as they do. So it's a choice now. So you, you know, the options are you could drive a truck, but you could also deliver freight in your car. And at the end of the day, that driving, you know, what one pays better. But one has a better quality of life. And that's a challenge. I just, you know, got them meeting with a major retailer. They're using DoorDash to do their store deliveries now. And their goal is to beat be Walmart on a retail side. And it's not only they're delivering their own product that you typically go to the mall to buy. They have a marketplace now, just like Walmart. So from a well-known mall retailer, you can now buy your toilet paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Things have changed. Yeah. yeah. Look, I think we always, we're big advocates for the driver, of course. We've always been advocates for the driver. It's how we make a living. But, you know, I think America moves by truck. 
first mile, final mile, middle mile, doesn't matter, American moves by truck. And the opportunity cost is high now. There are so many different options as John highlighted, we didn't see 10 years ago. You didn't have all the final mile delivery, you didn't have the white glove delivery, you didn't have the Uber options and stuff. So we've got to make it attractive for these drivers. And we work hard on it every day, making sure we, and a lot of it is freight selectivity uh, and quality of customer, candidly. You know, we have to make sure that we have the right type of freight going in and out of the right type of locations for the customer that the drivers want to move. Uh, you know, the drivers can be selective today and they have options. So, you know, when we're looking at what customers we want to do business with, we have to be smart about can we get the drivers aligned properly with it. And, you know, that's important. But, you know, I think there was this stigma for years and years in America that being a driver was a bad thing. Being a driver is not a bad thing. Being a driver is something people should be proud of to be. It's uh, We've got drivers now making you know, six figures uh, and having a great job with consistent pay every day, uh, consistent home every night. You know, so the quality has improved, I think, in a lot of ways of the lifestyle for the driver. The pay is there today. And, you know, we've got to get more people to advocate for people to become drivers. I don't know if we have to call, call them transportation engineers to change the, the mindset, but it's yeah. a good job for people uh, and we need more of them. So, you know, look, we've got to make sure we pay people properly. We've taken the inflationary rate increases like John did. Our position is very similar to Bowman's. We didn't take the big accelerated increases against our customer. We did what we had to do to offset the inflationary impact of vehicle costs, fuel costs, driver costs. I don't see us going back on driver wages. Uh, you know, they've been elevated, of course, a little bit the past few years. And in the intermodal logistics space, because of the shift we talked about earlier with more and more volume coming to the east and the gulf, we need to create a new driver market there. You know, these intermodal drivers weren't the last 10 years with nothing to do. We've got to attract people into this sector because it's so rapidly grown that we've got to get people excited about coming in out of these ports and, and moving into modal. So it's got to be a competitive wage. It's got to be a good customer to serve in and out of, you know, good velocity, consistent freight to attract them and good benefit programs. You know, we give them fuel programs, healthcare programs for our company drivers. You've got to give them good programs. So, uh, you know, that's what we're trying to do is make sure people understand you should be proud to be a driver. Make sure we give them a good, consistent paycheck. Make sure it's a good paycheck that uh, they can count on every week and they've got the same consistent business. Oh, okay. So, number one, as you guys know, I'm a former trucker. So, uh, you know, I always love the old um, uh, saying that the uh, that they had for one of the truck groups that said, without trucks, America stops. And I think <clears throat> the pandemic brought about people's greater appreciation for the men and women in the trucking uh, industry. So that was, uh, that was a good thing. So, so both of you driving pain, not going down, but probably not accelerating as much as it had over the past three years. I think that's fair to say. That's fair okay. to say. Perfect. All right. All right. So let's, uh, Ken, you talked a little bit about sort of predicting what was going to happen as we moved in 23. So as you think about the supply chain, whether you think about available capacity or pricing um, or even demand, what are your thoughts on 23? And, and, and I'll start with John Myers here and then we'll, uh, we'll finish with Ken since he already sort of previewed this a little bit. My crystal ball has been broken for years, Jason. <laughs> Um, what, what seriously, what do you say? Do you think we're going to be in a little bit of a downturn for the next <coughs> quarter? I think so. How's that going to affect things? I don't know because, again, we're just one, you know, to Matt's point, the pendulum swings either way, and you just don't know from one day to the next right now where we're going. So I don't think we're going to see what we saw in 2021. Um, 2022 was a bit split down the middle, and I really think 2023 is probably going to start off a bit slower 
and then we're going to see what happens. I don't want to predict any further beyond that. Fair enough, Matt. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're still looking at slightly inflationary, right? Just, I think you're one and a half to three percent contract for twenty three, right? You know what I mean, so, and it, but all bets are off if any one of those other four hundred seventeen things that we can't even we can all imagine but hope don't happen happens, right? So, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think we're planning on pricing being fairly flat in twenty three. I think we'll see a volume downtick the first one to two quarters, especially the GDSM type stuff, as we talked about, Jason. You know, our customers we're aligning with are similar to what Matthew and John are doing. We're looking for that contract, long term, strategic relationship. We're not your transactional guy. Uh, we're not the company for that. Uh, we deal with our customers in a very, very strategic fashion every day. When they call us, we react. We're there to protect them in the long term. We want them to protect us in the short term. We don't take advantage of you in the long term. Don't take advantage of us in the short term. We've got to protect capacity for people. We want to make sure when the market upticks uh, that we're going to be there to support them. So our initiative right now is continue to diversify the service offering so we can offer more solutions to our customers. Our target areas and sectors that are not as volatile uh, as standard retail may be. Uh, and most importantly, take market share away right now, which is what we're doing. So. So we're, we're pretty bullish in the long term, but then we'll have to navigate some choppy water in the next one or two quarters, probably. Well, that, that, that sounds fair, guys. Well, listen, I want to thank each of you for taking the time away from your busy days today. I want to wish everyone Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, uh, both my panel and the people listening to this great podcast. Everyone, take care. Thank Thanks, you, bro. Jason. Merry Christmas. Happy Merry holidays. Christmas. All of you. Everybody. Happy holidays, everybody. Thank Bye, you. Guys. Welcome to the NEARS.org Christmas special. Joining us for this very special segment is Dr. Lauren Starr. And Lauren reached out to us um, through LinkedIn. And when I took a few minutes to look through her profile, I said, this is absolutely perfect for our audience. The timing couldn't be any better. And she speaks upon, and actually, you know, it's what she bases her, you know, practice on is, a really important subject and it's inclusion, diversity and equality. And we hear all about it. Most of us probably don't under, really understand it. Um, our segment is made up of a lot of people like me, white, male, over 50. And I think, you know, from that standpoint alone, we probably have more questions than we have answers at this point in time. And with that, Lauren, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us how you've come to specialize in what you do. Ah, John, thank you so much for having me and hello to all your listeners and viewers. Um, yes, I'm a workplace inclusion psychologist. I head up DEI for an organization. Um, I'm a thought leader in the space, at least I like to think so. Um, I really got into, and, and you're right, right? We look at trends in business and in the transportation industry where we're looking at truly our boomers, right? Who are soon going to retire. Um, it is critical um, that we are building organizations that are inclusive to attract the diversity. So a little bit about my background. Um, 
I, you know, I, I'm not the typical DEI practitioner in that I understood inclusion at a very young age, thanks to Uncle Sam. Uh, I like to think the military calls it forced inclusion, um, where, you know, I'm a veteran and back in the 90s during the first Gulf War, if I couldn't trust the person next to me to have my back, I, I'd be dead. Um, and at no point could I say, oh, wait a minute, can I have someone that looks like me? You know, it, it was really just random or skill-based as to how we got paired up. So it's not uncommon to see, you know, a, a difference in ethnicity or gender in the military pairing up together and, and we come to rely on each other. So inclusion is my foundation. And as I worked in corporate America and then started my own consulting firm, it appears, no, I'm not going to say it appears, look, we've gotten it wrong. Um, organizations, especially in transportation, we become so lens focused in on numbers, right? On we want X percentage of women in the board or a person of, you know, people of color in, uh, uh, in leadership. And, and what we're missing is that the organizational culture doesn't support it, encourage it, and it's not inclusive. All you're doing is throwing money out the window. And, and if there are organizations out right out there right now that are listening and going, huh, if you want to continue to just throw money out the window, just write me the check. Um, I'll spend it on pretty things and write nothing will change. But that's what organizations have been doing. So, yeah, my focus really is on that evidence based inclusion and taking everybody back like level setting because you said it john right what is dei and most of us don't know we do know but we've heard so much rhetoric around diversity that the true definition gets lost so for, for a moment because i still want to say like right here in the beginning you know and you said it, our generation you know and i think is a little bit divided, you know, how we think. It's just like a country. We're so politically could divide it. If we if we even bring this up, well, you're just woke. Um, but or maybe you're just a good person and really care. Yeah. I mean, there's two ways of looking at that. And you know, on my side, I have a I have a 20 year old daughter. Mm -hmm. And you know, what we always used to say was she's always been colorblind. It didn't matter. Good people are good people, good friends were good friends. And from our perspective, we always thought we were doing a good job. Mm -hmm. Now, we're told, you know, or we hear that being colorblind isn't really correct because people have their differences. Yep. So with, with that going to mind, so I, I'm in your standpoint, I'm an HR person, I'm looking to hire the right person, but I also want an organization that is inclusive, that maybe takes that into effect. What am I doing right and what am I doing wrong? Yeah, so, so again, colorblind, right? That was such a trendy word back in the 90s. Oh, I'm colorblind. And what that meant to many of us was I'm just accepting of everybody as, you know, as who they are. Um, and then it became politically incorrect to utilize that word. So what we've actually in diversity, what we've done is created a trauma response. Right. Think about that. It's a, it's a trauma response now that, oh, I can't say that. That's a trauma response. Um, so we want to build our organizations in inclusion first. And John, you said something really important. You want to hire the right person, the qualified person, first and foremost. Now, 
if you have an organization that has an organizational culture that is inclusive, and let's level set here, inclusion means that the person that you employ feels that they are part of something bigger, that they're heard and have a seat at the table and can openly share ideas and what makes us different, we build upon, right? Those are strengths, not weaknesses. That's inclusion. Who doesn't want to work for a company like that? But yet companies like that aren't the norm right now, uh, right? And companies are focusing on, on quota attainment instead. But when you have that inclusive organization, right? It becomes part of your culture brand and people talk, right? You don't have the turnover, you see, you're seeing higher retention numbers, um, and we're seeing so much more productivity when your organization is inclusive. We're seeing so much uh, problem solving and innovation goes through the roof because we're starting to not only understand each other in the workplace, but you're now starting to understand your end customer. And when you can understand your end customer, you can anticipate the problems that they're going to have before they actually become problems, right? Your solution forward. That's what an inclusive culture will do. And when the word gets out that you're inclusive, diverse candidates, individuals that have different affinities, right? Our affinities are what make us unique. We all have different affinities. Uh, my affinities, right? I'm female. I'm a veteran. I have two disabilities. Those are what, right? I'm also a mom. Uh, I am straight. Those are all my affinities. I'm looking for an organization that's going to take all of those, take me as I am, and build upon that. That's how you attract that diverse candidate that's marginalized. And let's right when we talk about diversity in the work in the workforce, we're really talking about attracting a marginalized employee. Okay. So, with that being said, and I mean we hear about it all the time, it's hard to find labor, period. It is. And one of the questions that I recently heard um, at another conference I was at, somebody from Disney was speaking. And what that gentleman said was one of the first questions they're asked by millennials or Gen Z coming into the workplace, what is your stance on, you know, inclusion and diversity? And from his standpoint, it's becoming more of a deciding factor than the pay scale is. Mm -hmm. Is this a trend you see continuing? Is this something that is because it is the buzz right now? Or what are, you know, take me back. How did we get here? And is this really the direction we're always going to be going in now? This is the direction. So either get on board or be left behind. This is the direction. And, and here's the beautiful part, right? We look at Gen, we look at our millennials and we look at Gen Z. Let's pick on them for a second. Um, if, if you have any negative connotations around millennials or Gen Zs, we raise them, right? Uh, those of us that are Gen Xers and baby boomers, uh, that's my fault. Yes, I raised an empowered child. Um, and you know what? Everybody likes trophies. Even I like trophies. So let's take that off the table. Um, they are, right, they are products of their environment and they have been hearing from their parents and grandparents about 
exclusion in the workplace. So naturally, they want inclusion in the workplace. They also work at a much faster pace than traditionalists and baby boomers and Gen X because they get technology. They absolutely get right there, the technology hub um, at this point. And they want to see a workplace where they're valued because they've listened to their parents complain about not feeling valued in the workplace. Yes, this is the direction we are going, right? Organizational cultures right now, the book of business is absolutely transformational, which means everything matters. Look, in the 80s and 90s, it was transactional. You give me this, I give you that. You buy a train ticket, you ride on the train. Okay, if the seat was ripped, you know what? You bought the train ticket, you're going, it's going to get you there, done story. Um, if you have a conductor that's rude, eh, whatever. Um, if you have an all-white staff, it is what it is. It's transactional. I bought a ticket, I'm getting to New Jersey. It's not how it is today. I know when I ride the train, I am, I am buying an experience. And that's what we call transformational business. Um, same thing with shipping product, right? It's an experience. Look at what Amazon just did for their drivers, right? It, you can th say thank you to your Alexa and that driver will get an additional $5 in their salary as a thank you, right? It's the experience, right? Amazon is now going, okay, how do we get our drivers to be more transformational? I love my drivers. They, they've become part of my family because I receive a lot of packages. Um, and they, they do. They become an extension of the family, which keeps me buying from Amazon rather than jumping to another store. Right? That's transformational. And inclusion and diversity is at the core of that transformation. We are globalized now. We're no longer just a national business. We're globalized. We need to catch up. So let's factor in, you know, the thing we've all been talking about for the past couple of years, COVID comes along, totally changes the way we do business once again. So now many companies are meeting just the way we're talking. Yeah. There's no office environment. There's no ever going into the office. And this is how business is being done, which has to create yet another factor. How, so Say I'm a small company. I'm not an Amazon. I'm not a Disney where I have a big staff, but I'm a small company. I'm a supplier. I'm a machine shop. How do I start, you know, from the basics? How do you change the mindset or do you, how do you say to that guy with a crew of 30 people? Yeah. You know, if you really want to get talent, if you really want to get somebody under a certain age to come work for you, they're looking for, you're right, an experience because they want to be accepted. They want to be appreciated. And maybe they don't want to come to work at seven o'clock in the morning. Um, maybe that's what the job calls for, but things have changed. Mm -hmm. so how do you take a, somebody, you know, that is coming to you and is just saying, listen, I can't hire people. They tell me, you know, I have a bad attitude because all my people look exactly the same. I have expectations that might not be realistic anymore. Like, how do you even start that conversation with somebody? Yeah, I think we first have to take a look at where are you located? Because diversity is part, right? It is going to be based on your community. If you're up here in New Hampshire, the only diversity we typically see is what type of flannel you're wearing and whether or not you're carrying a gun. 
right? That's diversity. So it can't be a shocker that when I go into my, you know, service stations or whatnot, that the majority of people that work there are white men. Can't be a shocker there. So, you know, I always say, well, what's your community look like? Do you already have diversity? In other words, diversity is more than skin tone. Do you have veterans? Do you have individuals with disabilities? Do you have, you know, different religions coming in? What about sexual orientation and gender identity? Where is that in your diversity scheme? Because you're probably more diverse than you think. Um, what jobs don't you have to have in the office? I mean, I think if anything, COVID has really helped organizations become more diversified because now you can hire someone in Florida or someone in Alabama that might be in a segment population that is more marginalized, right? We can now find those call center attendants um, that have more diversity because our reach is bigger. So we have to start, We as, as a business owner, that's you know what has to be here and what doesn't have to be here. I think the other part is when we look at your job descriptions, right, what you're posting, what are the must-haves and what can be gone to the sideline? In other words, is five, year, five years experience, does that you know, displace the associate's degree or the bachelor's degree? Um, if you need a certification, how are you going to help your employees get that certification? Right now, we're starting to reach into communities that may not, right, that are socioeconomically challenged, and we can pull them in and train them and help them get ahead. So there's a lot of different ways that we can bring in diversity. Diversity is not the issue, right? We, we want to make sure that these employees that we bring in that are diverse stay. And if you're not inclusive, so then we take a look at what is the culture like? And I hear you. Yeah, 7 a.m. in the morning, that's a tough call. You're, that's going to be a hard sell for me to be in the office at 7. I'm in my office at 8. It's only an hour difference. But that 7 o'clock, how do we incentivize our employees to be there at 7 o'clock? Hey, maybe it is as simple as, I know this is going to shock you, providing bagels in the morning for breakfast. Because I know if I'm leaving my house at seven, I'm not eating breakfast. So it could be, you know, coffee and bagels every day. You come in, you have coffee and bagels, quick and easy, but it shows that you appreciate your employees, um, right? Have conversations with your employees. Let them get to know each other and, and listen. Listen, 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 right? The, uh, part of the foundation of inclusion is listening to your employees and letting them solve the problems themselves. So you're bringing in Gen Z and millennials, and they are used to being told how to solve problems. Let them solve the problems themselves and let them fail and just be there to support them in that failure, right? Help them learn from that failure. Uh, the last thing you want to do is be, you know, is creating a workforce that's constantly coming to you with their problems. And we see this in transportation. Um, you know, there's a lot of news about transportation right now. I mean, it's a hot topic. And on as an inclusive workplace psychologist, I cannot believe the state that we're at that we're arguing over seven days of sick time. Who isn't given McDonald's gives sick time? Like 
just blows my mind, right? Those are, right, those are organizations that you're just, you're not going to attract and keep the talent. You're creating a revolving door. And honestly, John, you know, this year in HR, it costs a fortune to replace an employee. It's one and a half times their salary at entry level. It's a lot of money. And, you know, it's so much cheaper to retain. But oh my God, yes. And you you hit the nail on the head. A few with your, you know, a few statements that you said, because number one, I didn't even think about degrees as part of diversity, right? Mm-hmm. And one one reason as transportation industry, we are where we are at, because my generation, the boomer generation, we're all told when we were in high school, you needed a four-year degree. And then you probably needed a master's degree, because you know, if you want to be in management, you need an MBA. And then, you know, you then you need certifications and then you need this. And this is what was preached for 20 plus years. Oh, yeah. And now here we sit. There's not enough electricians. There's yeah. not enough mechanics. There's no welders. There's nobody that wants to drive a truck because we put a stigma on Votech. We did. And, you know, the only people that went Votech were the stoners or the stupid kids. And that's. What was said by guidance counselors? I trust me. I I absolutely hear. I hear you. And and what kills me is right. So I'm adjunct faculty at a local university, and I'm like, so you're getting a business, a four year business degree, and you'll be lucky to make thirty eight when you graduate. Like, you would make more money if you, yeah. So if you want so with the trade here first, find, here we find ourselves. We need all these trades because what mm-hmm. everybody forgot about. The people who were skilled in their trades, they've retired. Yeah. They've moved on. And now we have no, but I've never, just myself, I've never looked at that as part of diversity. Um, it is. And, and so do you think, and just coming from that standpoint, these, you know, let's look at the bigger corporations down to the smaller ones. Do you think that mindset is still there of saying, I don't need that four-year degree? I really want that person who's been out there proving himself, working hard, and that might be my next candidate for a management position, an executive mm-hmm. position. Not he only has a associate's degree, or he only has twenty years experience. I, I will take twenty years experience over a master's degree. Like, let's be honest here: you cannot replace applied knowledge. You can't do it over book uh, over book learning. We're slow to adapt. So, and even in transportation, you're slow to adapt. Um, We're still requiring, I'm not talking about certifications, but we're still requiring that associate. My brother's a truck driver and he just recently got dinged on his performance review because he doesn't have a four-year degree. He's been driving a truck for 30 years. He's like, I'm not going back to school to get a bachelor's degree. He's a veteran. He's like, I'm I'm like, I love driving. Right. I, I, I sit back and I'm like, what do you need the degree for? You have all this experience. He's like, you know, I manage the night shift. I do this, this, this. But now they're saying for me to advance, I need to have a degree. And I said to him, go back to them, ask them what exactly or what exact courses do you need? What skills are the gap versus the degree? Because it's cheaper to build skills than it is to go after a degree these days. And degrees are expensive. Even the cheapest of cheap, you're looking at 30000 a year. 
I have a daughter that's a sophomore in college. I know all that. It's crazy. It is. It it really is. It's crazy. I said to my kids, I have three kids. And I'm like, if you're not going like pre-med medical or engineering, I'm not paying for it. Because those are the two areas that you must have a degree in. Like if you're going to be an engineer, you have got to know advanced math. And sure enough, I have two engineers and a pre-med student. (laughs) Well, congratulations on that. Right? Like, I mean, that's... It's too expensive not to. It's, yeah. And that's where we've gotten to. Um, so I guess another thing, as we throw it out there and look at it, when, as an organization, as a board of directors, I mentioned this in our little pre-conversation here, mm-hmm. we look to put together panels that are interesting, that appeal to a wide audience, But at the same time, and I'm not talking about this current board of directors, but other boards I've served on, for a while there, we were looking at a speaker of color or woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, you know, finally, you know, after a conversation with someone doing a podcast just like this, they said to me, I want to be picked because of what I know, not because of what color that I am. And I, I think you know, that mindset doesn't only transfer over to, you know, looking to put together a conference, but I think employers look at this mindset a lot of time too, because, you know, look at a TV commercial. We want a TV commercial that represents everybody. Uh, Yeah. And that's fine, right? I mean, because if they're a good actor, they should be acting. You you know, that's the way I look at it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. You know, it's skill set, but we also want to represent, and I guess that's the equality part of it. Mm-hmm. And of course, every toothpaste commercial shouldn't only be a white person with shiny white teeth brushing. Sure. You, you know, there's other people that brush their teeth. There are. Um, but with that being said, is, am I right in saying that's still a mindset just in a lot of places that it's one or the other and trying to find that alignment is probably where we're at right now? I think alignment is where we're at. I think right representation is very important right, in DE&I, in society, representation is extremely important um, so that we see that full picture because we haven't seen it. Um, That being said, it has to be quality representation. We don't want to have representation just for representation. Um, When I get tagged to speak at diversity conferences and we get on a Zoom call, they go, oh my God, you're white. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> or I look around and go, am I? I, Who knew? And I said, well, you know, I, you know, my affinities and I'll share them. And they're like, are you in a wheelchair? Are you white in a wheelchair? Because we could spin that. And I'm like, what do you mean spin? I, don't, don't, don't bring me on board because I have a disability. You want to bring me on board for my thought leadership. You want to bring me on board as a speaker because of the skills and the talent that I bring to the conference. And when I have organizations or conferences say, "Mm, you're not the right color for us, I tell them, that's fine. Don't want to speak at that conference anyways, because your core message is going to fall flat and you're not going to get what you, right? You're not going to get what you think you're going to get from someone that is different than me. So same in the workplace. So in a perfect world, Mm. okay throw politics out of it, throw (laughs) being woke out of it. Um, If you had to say to an HR team, or if you had to say to a board of directors, 
this is where you should be at. This is what you should be doing. Like in brief, how would you approach that? What would you say to somebody? If I'm approaching uh, an HR team, it is all about your culture. It is all about your culture right now. Do you have that inclusive organizational culture? Do your employees feel that they're heard, that they matter, that they're part of something bigger? Because the from a generational lens, the millennials and Generation Zs are outnumbering the rest of us that are retiring. This is your new workforce. Um, and we know inclusion builds retention. So that's the first step. And then if they say to me, oh, yes, yes, we absolutely are inclusive. Then I always say, show me your retention numbers. I want to see who's leaving. I want to see how many are leaving because really retention numbers show you exactly how inclusive the organization, right? Companies leave or employees leave due to culture and leadership. One and two, salaries number five. So, you know, the misnomer, oh, we're not paying enough. No, 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 no. People are leaving because of your culture first and, and then your leadership. And I think we, we still need to look at that and then apply diversity. But if you don't have that inclusive organizational culture, just write me the checks that you're going to be spending on the lack of retention. So, and do you, you know, obviously, you know, I, I do this with the financial analysts like ESG. Everybody's concerned about ESG right now. I'm not going to invest in your company unless you have these policies. And they're so wishy-washy at this point in time, right? They it's They're making it up as they go. And I think, you know, a lot on this topic too, they make it up as they go, but this is personal, right? This is personal to the kid graduating high school. Mm -hmm. Somebody like your brother that's been employed for 30 years and all of a sudden saying he's not good enough because he doesn't have a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, that's the part that, you know, I sit back and think about, it's like, I am so happy I'm nearing the end of a career, not just starting out in a career. Because yeah. again, I don't know if I'm always right, you know, because I have my thoughts. Absolutely. And you try to be open to everything. I think if, if you're half decent of a human being, you're mm -hmm. going to be accepting to everyone. You don't have to agree with everything, but you're going to be accepting. And mm -hmm. to me, I think that's the biggest challenge, right? Because you're raised with your norms and we're too far along to really change those. We could change perceptions, but. Can we? Maybe. Maybe, right? So, you know, you want to be receptive to that pain in the butt kid that's just in the workforce that, you know, we don't have a cappuccino machine in the office and he really needs his cappuccino before he could start his day yeah but at the same time you see the talent and the potential so is he a problem is he an asset and or am i the problem because i have to start to recognize these things just a little bit better yeah you're the problem you're, you know, right, or you're not going to retain that asset. You're not going to retain that talent. If the if your worker wants a damn cappuccino machine, they're $69. Go buy a cappuccino machine. I know, right? And and we are not. And let let me let me take a step back there. We are not um, catering to every want and whim, right? We look at right that broad lens. How right? How do we make the workplace better? If it's that cappuccino maker, if that's what's going to get 
him into the office at 7 a.m. It's like the bagels. It's like the coffees, right? It, it's how do you make the workplace better? He Trust me, he won't be the only one that's using the cappuccino ma machine. Others and, will as well. But and I'm amused because I see, you know, many companies now getting rid of the typical office, opening mm -hmm. up more like a lounge, a coffee shop. But not only that, they're introducing alcohol into the afternoons. Which, you know, again, our generation would be, ooh, we can't really I'm have like, that. Did risk. you catch my face there? I was like, <laughs> oh, I hate that. That's an HR nightmare on liability. But, but they're getting a generation that typically don't talk face-to-face, -face, talking face-to-face, -face because I could, mm -hmm. again, I got 20-year-old, I could tell you, she's typing into a phone texting. Yep. I'm, not, I'm not positive she actually has conversations on her phone that involve voice. I know. Or she's pre-recording a message and sending it. I know. I trust me. I know. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I see that that's a lot of ingenuity of people recognizing you might work remote, but you still need to have face-to-face -face personal conversations because mm -hmm. great ideas come out of conversation, not text messages or Teams messages or whatever else we're using this week. Mm -hmm. But, and I, I think that's a way too for, you know, Joe, who's never met Kathy besides nasty email exchanges because they're always working at opposing ends to sit together in a room and actually have a conversation that doesn't involve widgets, right? Yeah. And absolutely. It, it, so I think, you know, from my perspective is the world is changing. Mm -hmm. Some companies adapt faster than others. But I always question if the company is doing it right. You, you know, there's extremes. And I think it just seems we're always at extremes with, with each other when it comes to topics anymore. And mm. that's why I said, is there, if you had, and I know I'm putting you on the spot, do you have an example of a company that is doing it right? Oh God, uh, right? Like I'm thinking like transportation companies that are doing it right. You know, I think, I think we have companies out there that are trying to do it right, right? We, we look at one of the largest passenger lines, Amtrak, they are trying to do it right. Um, and, and here is where there is the miscommunication, misunderstanding. Are we focusing on the D, the I, or the E? Um, and, and how do we build that workplace culture to support our employees? Um, in, in my book, um, Evidence-Based Inclusion, I walk you through that inclusion paradigm of, you know, starting with awareness and making sure everybody's on the same page and what those outcomes look like, and then launching into level setting and, and um, you know, diversity networks or employee resource groups and, you know, initiatives that will drive, but it's, right, it comes back to allowing in inclusion, your employees drive inclusion. Top leadership supports it, but it's your, it's every individual employee in diversity leadership supports that. And the employee really doesn't have a role in that. So again, it's, it's building up your culture to support the employees that you're bringing on board. And you're right, Zoom and uh, Teams, yes, we can see each other face to face, but now we're starting to recognize different environments that individuals live in, but that does not replace the face-to-face -face connection. Um, we need to be creating a safe space in the workplace where we can have 
these difficult conversations. You know, I, I, I keep joking around with my family. I think my next book is going to be called Diversity Trauma because we have 60 years of trauma in the DEI space where we don't know what to say anymore. We don't know what to do anymore. What's politically correct? What's not politically correct? What'll get you fired? What won't get you fired? We need to stop that. We need to breathe a little bit. And it doesn't matter what industry or what size your organization is. Employees, for the most part, want the same thing. And so. I think that's a great place that we're going to end this podcast on because there's so much more to talk about. Oh. And, you know, knowing that you're based up in New England, we have conferences there at least once a year. So I'm hoping when we reach out to you, you could agree to actually come and speak at one of I our will, absolutely. Uh, because to me, it's just been fascinating. I hope I didn't say anything that's going to get me in trouble. But that's the point of this conversation, right? That's because we're all going to say something that gets us in trouble at some time. And with that, I, I know you have a website. I know you have a few books. So please, by all means, tell us how people can reach out to you and what you're currently out there pushing. So I'll, I'll keep it really simple. Just go to Dr. Loran Star. That's L-A-U-R-A-N-S-T-A-R.com. You'll see my latest book on there, Evidence-Based Inclusion. It's time to focus on the right needle. Uh, I am 100% evidence-based. If I don't have an ROI on an initiative, it didn't make it in the book which is nice. Um, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And I really, I'm here. I'm in your corner. Don't feel like, oh, if I ask her a question, I'm going to get a bill. That is not how I operate. I'm here to support you. If you have questions, just reach out and ask me a question and I will absolutely give you an answer. But go to my website. That's the, the, the easiest and cleanest way to get in touch with me. Well, I really appreciate your time. I wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Thank New you. Year. Yeah. And I really look forward to speaking to you once again. I love it. Let's do this well, again. Everybody. Welcome to our special edition of the Tony and Jason show. Um, this is our nears.org holiday Christmas special. And this is sponsored by Cowan. And we do have Jason on with us. And I'll let him do his little Cowan overview after, of course, we let go, brains go before beauty. So Tony, take it away. I refuse to talk now. <laughs> um, Don't hate me because I'm beautiful, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> That's not why. Uh, happy Christmas, everybody, and to John and Jason. Uh, I'm supposed to give a quick overview. Uh, we're in a really interesting time. By the time you you watch this, uh, we'll be past the, this short-term um, rail crisis on labor and the contract. Uh, it is really a funny time for me because it's a time when we can really say that Wall Street uh, is or should be taking the long view in the rest of the world of the short uh, short time, you know, a narrow 
uh, close end point of view that, that Wall Street's often accused of being too, you know, too short term focused. Uh, right now, is uh, we're we have the House and the the White House urging passage of uh, of contract for labor that would replicate the PEB recommendations, which I have said all along would be the final outcome. Uh, whether or not we get to a strike depends upon. Uh, whether they could get 60 votes in the Senate. If we did get to a strike, it would last a matter of minutes. The issue here, if you're a logistics manager, and a lot of you would be, if you're a shipper, uh, this is a very big deal, and I get it. It's like having a hurricane come at your plant or your port or your warehouse uh, and having a very long lead time. We've been talking about this hurricane for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and it would be a catastrophe, as all the shippers say, uh, if this were to happen. And we don't know if that hurricane might actually you know, tip north and miss you, as I expect, uh, but it's up to you to plan for it. So I get that. You need to have uh, divert freight, uh, you know, especially hazardous and refrigerated materials, high-value materials. You need to either you know, sit tight or divert to the highway. If you're an investor in the rail industry, if you're on the financial side, the, the strike doesn't matter. Uh, it may affect a couple of weeks of traffic as the previous uh, early fall, you know, when we thought that, that when, when they came down to the, the end of the, the negotiations uh, that were successful, although ratification wasn't, when that happened, we thought there was a strike date and people did divert traffic away. But as, a, as a, somebody looks at the railroad industry over the long term, over the, you know, the broad specter, spectrum here, um, we don't really care about that. Yes, I, I don't want chippers to have a bad day, but the, the fact is we know what we care about is the outcome, uh, which is 24% uh, roughly, uh, you know, a total compensation package increase. We talk, you care about the inflation. We care about, you know, uh, work rule changes. Railroads did not get what they were seeking, you know, three plus years ago, which was uh, potentially one-man crews, although they could potentially get that in individual negotiations. That's what we care about. And we already know the last page of this, you know, Stephen King novel. We're waiting for the last chapter to play out in the next week that will be over by the time you see this. Uh, and I just want to say that I don't really care. I mean, yeah, I read the papers every day. Uh, shippers and railroads are claiming, you know, two billion dollar hits to the economy, spin us into a recession, put other people out of work. That's the cards they have to play. Railroad labor. Uh, in the best position ever, think of Aaron Judge in his walk year hitting 62 home runs. They have a you know, Democratic government, uh, a labor shortage that everybody knows about. Railroads in an unpopular position in the district, you know, with the STB, et cetera. Uh, it really makes sense for them to delay as long as possible. And every time they do, they get a little bit sweeter package. Uh, and and that goes to, the, that, uh, to affect everybody. So what basically, from an investment point of view, this is much ado about nothing. Uh, even if we were to get a strike again, it's not an investable event. So I will now go past it and say, we know, you know, this is a, an inflationary event that surprised the railroads. They all had to have major true ups in the third quarter, $104 million for Union Pacific being, as I think, Jason, the, the highest number uh, that tells you that in many ways labor won this round and, and they were given the best cards they've had in 50 years, you know, in terms of the timing of this round. And it's important to remember, as I, I read an article today in New York Magazine, of all places, about rail labor, that this is not an uprising by labor, despite the social media here. This is the regularly scheduled, you know, wage, you know, and, and benefits renewal time. This is the regularly scheduled, delayed a bit by the pandemic, just played very well for labor. Uh, they also 
much of this discussion out there on all sides from the catastrophe to the economy to we're not going to get the harvest in to you know i'm working like a dog and not getting paid for it uh to it's dangerous out there all that stuff is is playing out in the court of public opinion they are trying to influence congress because congress will be the final arbiter this uh, railway labor act is ancient it was designed to in many ways get to where we are today to delay Going beyond that, the real question, and then I'll turn over to Jason, is what is the economy going to do? And I, I'm not an economist, and Jason has a works at an investment bank. Maybe you can tell us, but uh, is there pent up demand that railroads' poor service has allowed, uh, you know, for them to recover? Will will they be able to compensate in some ways for a slowing demand picture by regaining goods that are literally on the ground, some bulk materials, finished automobiles? and share in, in natural goods that should move their way because they are cheaper, more efficient, and emit less in terms of emissions. Um, and that, you know, that would include paper and steel, and of course, the intermodal front. As they get their act together, and the trend line suggests they are slowly, slowly achieving that level, I would expect some natural business uh, to in boxcar and gondola and in intermodal containers and trailers to ship their way, and that will help to some degree, compensate for what may be a slowing economy in 2023. The most important thing for them to do is get their service act together. Uh, I believe they're achieving it well behind the deadlines they set for themselves, but they need to get there. That's, you know, solve the crisis, and then we can move on to talk about whether they're truly capable of growing and whether Pat Ottensmeyer of Kansas City Southern's famous awkward phrase I repeat all the time is really true. Does service beget growth? I believe it does. But the test has, we haven't had the test yet. Jason? Sure. Well, Tony, a great uh, intro as always, you know, and and, and I'll, I'll say this in the labor strike. I've been in Tony's camp. I, I, I've i said I don't think there's going to be a strike. And, and I, I think it, over the last week, the percentage chance of a strike for me has been coming down. I mean, earlier this week, we lowered it to about 15%. Um, you know, I, I obviously, by the time everyone listens to this, it will be settled. Uh, there are two bills right now. We're expecting the one bill uh, to push through the PEB recommendations to pass. Uh, we're expecting the other bill that has passed the House uh, to give some extra paid sick leave, which is about seven days. Uh, we do not. We think that's kind of a very tough time in the Senate to get through. So I think we're going to go through with the, the PEB administrations. And so it's going to look like, you know, maybe labor has won this round, as Tony said. But, you know, I would actually phrase it a little bit differently. You know, I, I I think that the pendulum just swung a little bit. The, the rails had it wildly in their favor, especially compared to the rest of the country, for a few years with very low labor inflation built into their contracts, right? So while you saw massive uh, labor wage increases right. on the truck side, you know, rails were looking, you know, at that two two and a half percent number that they always talked about, and and it, and 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 it was it was a benefit for them. And so now they're basically just playing catch up. And, and right. yes, it's the largest contract that we've seen. Uh, but still, uh, you know, for a while they 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 were in a very good position. So now I think the onus is on the class ones to prove that they can push through price increases to cover some of that. And I think over the long run they can. In the short term, that's going to be it's going to remain to uh, be seen only because the economy, as Tony mentioned, is 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 a little bit on treacherous ground right here. Um, a, a couple of things, you know, Tony, you mentioned. Um, you know, how much um, uh, freight left the rail network that should naturally find its way back. Um, you know, we just did a Suds with Seidel rail version. Uh, there was a very large short line on uh, who basically said, hey, listen, we think we lost three to 5% growth 
to the railroads pushing away freight and congestion this year, whether you know whether it's that or whether lack of cars or whatever you want to call it, they three to five percent is what they said, right? So that's a significant amount when you start if you if you start averaging that and pushing it across the rail space, that's a lot of money that's left the rail space in, in 2022, and if you really think about it over the course of 2022. It's probably more front half loaded than it is back half loaded because we're now finally starting to see some of the service issues abate. They're getting better. They're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they are getting a little bit better. And that's because I think we've had some success uh, in getting a lot of railroad workers uh, through the system now and, and, and out into the networks and, and, and helping out a little bit, to be to be blunt. Um, I think longer term, um, uh, Tony's right, this, this strike thing's a blip. We got to look longer term. Um, I am of the belief if we get improved consistent service and better supply chain visibility, the railroads will have freight coming back into their networks long term. Uh, that is that is the call at, at, at Cowan, and I think Tony would, would agree with that as well. Yes. But it remains to be seen, one, if the rails can get their service consistent to where it needs to be, and two, how long it will take to get proper supply chain visibility uh, for their uh, for their uh, shipper clients, right? Those are the two main things in my mind. Um, in in terms of other big trends, you know, we just put out a big ninety plus page report uh, on uh, permanent changes in the supply chain. We talk, uh, uh, you know, about uh, uh, reshoring and nearshoring. We talk about um, ESG. We talk about uh, reverse logistics being a big trend out there for uh, supply chains. Uh, and then, you know, we also talk about shifts on um, on freight and, and where they're landing right now. You know, you saw a big shift in 2022 of freight going to the East Coast from the West Coast for a variety of different reasons, right? Um, and a lot of that freight will naturally find its way back to the West Coast because it just makes more sense. You know, however, you know, our proprietary surveys have shown that, you know, about 10% plus is going to stay on the East Coast, uh, and that's according to the people who shifted the freight. So we just went out and asked them. And, and I think, you know, if you look at the port of um, the port of L.A., uh, Gene Soraka has come out and said <clears throat> he thinks he's going to lose about 5% of that freight. So we're at 10, Gene's at 5. But again, you're, you're going to have some sort of a benefit, I think, or a potential benefit uh, for some of the East Coast railroads. And uh, in terms of the economy, we think it's uh, uh, on, on sort of shaky ground here. I would uh, categorize the current state here as we head into the holiday season as as a uh, peak never really happened or as I call it really was pulled forward a bit. Um, but, you know, we're not falling off a cliff just yet. John? I would see you mentioned the freight moving to the East Coast. And that's a very big, big deal. The The railroads all benefit. The intermodal community benefits from L.A. Long Beach growth more than anything else. Obviously, uh, if you get into the East Coast, you're much more truck competitive. The distances are shorter. Rail share is significantly lower. Uh, so when people argue that uh, a new service is open up in Savannah and that will be good for Norfolk Southern or CSX, they're missing a point that they would much rather take it from Chicago. Um, I think we will see some flow back there. Uh, I, I don't your number seems high to me, but, you know, I agree that a lot of it will stick. This will be the second big time that we didn't talk about labor. Maybe ultimately the bigger labor issue is what's happening in the West Coast dock workers. And this is the second time this century that their labor issues and their refusal to uh, to allow autonomy and technology to, to come in and play its role uh, is costing their own port share. Uh, they are taking a short term viewpoint of 2000. Two, when they struck, it was a pretty big hit to the economy. It was, it was right in the middle of the peak season. 
back when we had more sharply defined peaks. Uh, I believe Walmart that then and probably still now the largest importer, but then really the the tremendous you know player uh, in in the business had about an eighty percent of their business coming in through Southern California, and they've now gone to a four or five port strategy, which everybody else has replicated, and that's a permanent share loss. Now LA grows so much. LA Long Beach, in some ways they don't notice it, right? They will, you know, if the economy grows in 2023 or for, say for the second half of 23 and 24, they're going to grow and that's good, but they will have lost some term permanent share. I eventually expect a bifurcation of, you know, of East Coast goods from low value to high value because it still is two weeks faster, you know, up to two weeks faster coming into LA, getting on a train. Um, I just had my rail trans conference two weeks ago we did not talk about labor because they were in the middle of the ratification process. There really wasn't much to say then, but there was a lot of talk about cultural change, uh, a lot of talk about railroads uh, from the railroads about really having a growth mandate, uh, obviously the CPKC story, et cetera. Uh, but really the most notable piece, aside from a fiery goodbye speech by Jim Foote of CSX, uh, when he had, you know, had, having already retired, had no holds barred and didn't bar any of them, uh, was... Uh, Chairman Marty Oberman of the STB really uh, giving the most impassioned and really, I think, best, uh, um, I would call it an attack on the railroads, uh, calling it, uh, you know, the, their hit to the economy because of the labor situation prior to the current one, you know, with all the numbers in it. So the, the response uh, after this speech was that the railroads really need to have a cultural change in order to affect permanent uh, uh, growth potential to be able to not just recover, but when the economy then recovers, not to have their service levels slow down as growth goes up, uh, which has been the historic pattern. And one of the things that they all agreed on, this was, you know, regulators uh, and railroads and shippers that were there, as well as outside observers like myself, was the need to affect a better relationship with, with you know, with labor to, to reduce attrition to change, and I hate the phrase, and I apologize, change the paradigm of how they've done that. Now, <clears throat> they talked about this as much as a decade ago, right? We can't attract millennials the age-old way. We can't have a command and control, you know, where we yell at, at everybody all the time. People don't like that anymore. Don't know if they ever did. Um, but but now I think the, the chickens have come home to roost a bit. Uh, Jason, I also agree with you that, that when I call this a victory for, for labor, in many ways, this is just a, you know, a truing up of what of the natural inflation, they should have, you know, they would have been accruing if they'd had annual deals. You know, it's not, and it's also something they could easily absorb uh, as they, you know, they're supporting a PEB based, you know, uh, uh, answer. So, uh, you know, this is labor one, perhaps what they should have, what one would have ordinarily, under ordinary circumstances, expected them to win. Uh, the key question now is in the future can railroads individually? negotiate with their individual unions, and that's where we get to now, to, you know, to trade off technological advancement uh, for a better quality of life. And I think sometimes those things go hand in hand, you know, so that there's more regularity, more consistency on crew scheduling so they can have a life and on, you know, rail service so they can grow their share. I think that's the, that's got to be the next five-year, you know, goal for railroads. And if they do, we'll see it on a consistent basis you know, in their results. So, I mean, that's not, that sounds nebulous. When you talk about culture, you know, what does culture mean in earnings per share? Well, I think it means a lot in the next uh, cycle. So uh, that's what they talked about. Again, I always say the roads are talking the talk the right way. Now it's up to them to walk it.
Okay, so you both of you have struck on a bunch of questions that we had here. So I'm gonna try to cons <laughs> consolidate some of them uh, because you've alluded to them, but not necessarily answered them. Um, ah. And cor correct. When we talk like about true politicians, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, thanks uh, for that question. I want to tell you about my tax policy. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about trucks versus trains, right, um, it seems with railroads, especially the class ones, I'm going to leave the short lines out of this because a lot of times I look at a short line as closer to being a trucking company where they're able to be flexible and yes. adjust rapidly to changing conditions within the supply chain. But when we talk of class ones, right, when we put together our, our agenda at NEARS, you know, it's always about capacity, then it's about equipment, then it's about first mile, last mile. It, the agendas always seem to go in a cycle. And, you know, as we look at what the class ones are out there saying now, you know, I've seen a couple press releases from class ones talking about they want to capture that truck traffic back. They want more of that first mile, last mile. And this is just a constant cycle. And if the supply chain in the past few years have taught us anything, a class one can't react or has never traditionally is what I should say, been able to react to how quickly the supply chain changes and to chase after business where times and leads have went from, you know, we can wait for our product for a couple of weeks. It's okay if it gets held up in Chicago till, you know, we've already been waiting for six months for it to come in. It needs to be there now. Um, we've already, you know, past two years, we've missed seasonal shifts and pushes. You know, you could argue there's a freight recession, as some people like to say it, but I would argue it's a normalization of freight. So with that being said, yeah. do we beat the same drum over and over again? Are these just like buzzwords that we like to fall to in certain types of economies? Or what's your take on it? Well, well I got you know, quick ones, Jason. Uh, well, I, I'll give you a couple quick, too. So yeah. number one, I, I think if anyone listening to this think that the railroads are going to become as with well, the class ones will become as flexible as short lines or as flexible as the trucking industry. They're, they're just kidding themselves. Can, can they improve from where they are now? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's just like if anybody asked Tony and I, you know, can, you think you guys could lose some weight? Yeah, absolutely. From these current levels. Sure. We can. Am I going to get back to 185? I highly doubt it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think it's about improvement with the class ones from here on out. And, and, and that again, is going to how they capture some of that freight that that has gone away, and you always have that freight that goes away. You know when you have drastic moves uh, on on the pricing side. So you know we've seen a, a huge shift in the spot market, and and the larger shippers, the medium sized shippers, they'll always play a certain percentage of the spot market, and they'll move their freight around, right? And 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 that's them being flexible within their supply chain, right? And in terms of trying to either meet their budgets or exceed their budgets on an annual basis when you talk to them. So um I think those are some important things to think about. You know, can the railroads improve a thousand percent? Yes. Um, but they're not gonna get to anywhere near the flexibility uh of a trucking company. Uh, I would say I have two thoughts on that. Um one, defending the big railroads, they, they cannot change in the flexibility that's required, you know, that a trucking company could do on the daily basis. They're actually in the fullness of time, more flexible than we give them credit for. If you see, if you remember how they, they pivoted and handled a, a business that we had never heard of in 2012. And then by 2014, 
was dominating the headlines and you know had grown from zero to two or three percent of their freight right in the middle of the continent, and that's crewed by rail. They had done a pretty good job of pivoting to that. It took them several quarters, and of course, the pivot was all there, and then the business went away. That's not their, you know, their, their fault. But you know, if you give them enough time to spend the capital required to do the training and the hiring, they're actually reasonably flexible. The day-to-day tactical stuff that trucking companies do so well that short lines excel in, no, they can't. Which is why I wrote a report in the fall sort of called short lines to the rescue. I believe that, it, I don't think it's going to happen, but I think that class one should turn more business on the you know the first and last mile to short lines. There's a big fear of missing out. Genesee and Wyoming just got a Hyundai plant announced, you know, and I'm sure that some people uh, in Georgia, I'm sure some people at CSX and Norfolk Southern were taken to the woodshed about that. Uh, part of the reason that plant was cited there was they could access both of those class ones. But if they turn this stuff over, if you look at some of the Watco examples out there, and Rick Webb was our innovator of the year at Rail Trends, you know, they have grown the business by switching their customers seven plus times a week when the class ones are, are, are saying, you know, no, we're going to do five and they're actually doing two right now. Um, but, you know, as they get better, that will improve, but they'll do five and it'll be rigid. It'll be right here as opposed to, you know, showing the flexibility that the customer wants. Watco has given several great examples that have benefited the customer in Geisberg, Louisiana. In 12 months, they grew the business by 35%. All that growth business went to the CN, which got to benefit from running more trains and doing what they do best, which is long haul service. So I truly believe that short lines and their flexibility can help make the system better uh, by working more with with the class ones. Uh, I think that's probably a, a guide for the future. Whether we see that actually happen, I'm not you know, yes, we'll see it. It'll be anecdotally everywhere. It'll happen. Whether it'll be systemic, I'm not sure. But that is a potential solution. You know, class ones, you know, deal with national accounts. And they, you know, it's very hard for them to be local and entrepreneurial. It's really not in their DNA. Um, they're, they can get better, as Jason said. They're never going to solve that problem. That's why partnerships help. Uh, partnerships help create the intermodal business. And I think short line partnerships can help in the carload business. And, you know, I, it certainly would help alleviate a lot of uh, uh, drama in Washington. Uh, short lines are beloved by shippers and by regulators. And that's something to keep in mind. Hey, Tony hit the nail on the head. You know, I, I, he mentioned the word local. I mean, a lot of the industrial development gets done on, on, on a localized basis, right? And, 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 and he brought up Genesee, Wyoming, and, and I think Tony would probably agree with me that nobody has a better industrial development program than Genesee, Wyoming over the last couple of years. They've, they've just done a tremendous job of, of finding you know, <coughs> projects and companies to pull on their lines, using grants, working with local governments. They, they've been fantastic at that for the entire time I've covered them, which goes back to 1998. <laughs> right, same. They're really good. And the short lines in particular, I would, you know, I would say that Anacostia and Waco and RJ Corman, they're all the they're deals all really well. And what that's just really because they're fighting for every scrap, they also know that grant money is a big part of their business. Understanding yes. state as well as the, the federal Christie grants and whatnot can really put together a package. Uh, yes, class ones can do that, but you know, getting a grant for $1.5 million, you know, it's very hard for a big four US railroad to think about that. You know, that's a little number. It's a big number in a county in Ohio. It's a big number for a short line and for that shipper that wants to expand their, you know, their, their, their plant so, or create a new distribution center. Uh, they're also much more flexible using Transload. 
Yes, we hear about it from class ones. That's an area of big improvement that they can do. You know, they really need to look with the help of short lines and other areas to move beyond their their footprint in the ground. Something that JJ Rue at CN was really working on, uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, a takeaway from what happened at CN will not be that we shouldn't be looking to feed the beast by increasing, you know, uh, your reach away from your track. Uh, short lines can certainly help with that. One question out there that, you know, is getting a lot of headlines more than the strike probably did is lockdowns going on in China again, where they're barricading people into either the company work camps that they're at or into their houses. Obviously, production slowing down. Apple announced there's going to be delays on the iPhone and all, which means there's going to be chip shortages again, possibly, but also a lot of freight coming into the ports again. What do you see as the long-term impact of what's going on in China? And how do you think that's going to affect, you know, going forward into the next season? Yeah, I think one of the big things that you're that you're going to see coming out of this, and also I think this is also a knock-on effect from uh, what we've seen going on with the terrible war in the Ukraine, is, is people are worried about their supply chains, right? You know, you have people out there that have a massive percentage of their supply chain exposed to China. And when you look at what's going on now, and when you look at what could go on with a potential invasion of Taiwan and, and any knock-on effects from that, people are legitimately worried. And I, I think this is part of a long-term theme that we're going to see over the next five-plus years, uh, that people are going to start moving some of their supply chain. And, and what's happened the last 18 and 24 months, um, in some ways, has been good for um, people in our industry. Because I think a lot of companies, a lot of CEOs, you know, they kind of knew about the supply chain. I'm not going to say no one knew what it was because clearly they did. Right. I don't think they were educated to the level that they should have been about their supply chain. And now they are. And, and now they're really looking at it. So I, I think we're going to see supply chain shift globally more in the next five years than we've seen the previous decade. I'm not a big believer in reshoring as a major factor, certainly over the intermediate term, for goods that railroads carry. For example, iPhones and chips. Chips are very important for the auto industry, but railroads don't carry chips. Chip factories are being built back here, uh, PPE and other things. Nearshoring and then you know, different shoring, right, If into other parts of Asia will be a factor. Certainly, China is putting itself in, in a position where people are looking for alternatives. It's a slow process. You know, there, there are sure. advantages to China, despite the political situation and the terrible way they're handling, uh, you know, the pandemic uh, because of you know, the density of manufacturing in these various areas and whatnot. Uh, so I think it, it is a factor, uh, but it is a slow factor. Now, <clears throat> nearshoring, Maybe it's sort of a race between which is the more inept financial government, China or Mexico, because while Mexico is a great uh, opportunity, you know, it's the economy of the future, as they say, and it always will be. Um, clearly, from a rail perspective, it's a great opportunity, right? But AMLO, who is, you know, in some ways a friend of the railroads because he needs, you know, the goods movement and he needs GDP, et cetera, also has, you know, tried to put the kibosh on uh, um, refined product shipments by inspecting um, you know, trains and doing things to delay and break up that supply chain. That was a great growth opportunity. It will be a great growth opportunity for Kansas City Southern. And now, of course, he's talking about banning essentially U.S. corn, the largest uh, export of the U.S. In, into Mexico, 
uh, because based on on hormones, you know, GMO issues, but really is is a political ploy to you know the uh, uh, farmer, the peasant farmer class in Mexico, uh, which is part of his big base. You know where he comes from. Uh, it's ridiculous. There's not enough corn really in the world if you exclude. Uh, the U.S. to move in and solve their problems, even if Brazil moves up. So these are just ways in which he is slowing down what might have been a faster movement uh, to, to building up Mexico. His, his support of his own energy industry, Pemex, and uh, their utilities is so anti-green that even US, large U.S. manufacturing companies are afraid to move there because of the ESG impact of building more in Mexico. That's really more a, a rhetorical threat. It's something that Joe Henricks of CSX, uh, who the new guy who came in from Ford, and we should talk about succession issues, but he has talked about his experience uh, in, in you know, between our administration, previous administration, and Mexico of building cars there. Uh, there are more impediments put up than you think that they would be, given how important that is to their economy. I believe that, that this too shall pass. And Mexico will remain a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous growth source for North American railroading and for all of us and for us as consumers. But, you know, the, the, the administration there is, you know, is, is acting much like the administration in China, not necessarily in its own long term best interests. OK, well, let's talk a little bit about you. You brought it up. You know, we have some new CEOs coming to the fold. We see some mergers happening again with is MS just is purchasing a short line, I believe. Obviously, CSX wrapped up Pan Am. Um, but let, let's talk about, you know, the big picture here with the class ones. And also, let's not leave out activist boards, because obviously we know that had an impact on CN. So going into the new year, what do you see as really the big picture on the class ones? And Jason, I'll let you discuss a little bit too on the trucking side of things. You know, Warner just made two acquisitions, which is very uncharacteristic for them. And, you know, we know the trucking industry is going to see a lot of impacts, I think, in the next year. So as far as the big picture, what do you see? Well, I'll, I'll let Tony handle it first, and then I'll jump on with any comments and then talk about some of the trucking stuff. Tony, yeah. go ahead. So um, one of the things that uh, that uh, important to Jason and I, and ultimately important to the people who are watching uh, this later, are, are the investor days that are coming up. One of which will be done by the time you actually see this, and that's Norfolk Southern. Um, there's also both Canadian railroads, and those are where the really important meetings because they lay out three and five year plans, and we we also get to see so you know and, and evaluate their bench strength and whatnot. Um, Norfolk Southern. Uh, and Canadian National, which will be doing theirs in May, have both announced new chief operating officers that were somewhat surprising moves in the last, um, uh, uh, you know, little bit. One was bringing back one of the the old gray hairs at CN Ed Harris, and the other from Norfolk Southern's promotion of Paul Duncan. Just replaying He's, greatest hits, Tony. Replaying sorry? the greatest hits. They're replaying the greatest hits. Exactly. <laughs> um, it, it's funny, you know, you think, you know, which other old timers are going to, you know, will, will Jim Foote come back in, in, as a chief marketing officer somewhere? Um, uh, the Paul Duncan is, is considered a rising star in Norfolk Southern, and the world yeah. will get to have a better sense of him in a week. But also, they're going to talk about what you, what you just said in terms of M&A. They did just purchase for $1.6 billion. They just purchased um, a, a line out of Cincinnati, Ohio, that we didn't really know existed because they've been operating that line since perpetuity, right? So they were paying rents. The Norfolk Southern has also, is also doing this in North Carolina, where that line is not for sale. Most of their trackage there is owned by the state. So this line was owned by the city 
uh, and they were paying a lease to this. They were already operating it. So this is a different kind of deal than, say, BNSF buying in the Montana Rail Link. There they, they were buying that, but they also got the revenues, in effect. You know, they bought a business. Here they're buying the underlying asset that they've been running. It's a bit of a mystery to me why they would need to do that because the lease payments weren't that large. Uh, but I believe it's a mystery that we'll find the, you know, the, the answer will probably be obvious and in a week we'll know it. Um, you know, but I just thought that it was important to say that the other, you know, m and I, I think we're at the, I would love to see more short line creation, as I've already said, I'm not sure that that will happen. I think we may be in a cooling off period in the short line boom uh, you know, deals the boom in short line deals because we're running out of product. Any short line that was for sale or any holding company that say, you know, that the leaders were, were selling out after you know, reaching a certain age, the line out the door will, will remain huge. The interest in short line assets, you know, remains at peak levels, but the supply of product is not. So that leaves what deal is left? Well, the big one, right? The last major rail merger, um, CPKC, uh, where I have... Um, full belief in the management team and full belief in the ultimate um, uh, uh, deal, the, 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 the numbers they're talking about in terms of uh, new revenues, you know, new business brought on. I am a little bit worried about the timing they're saying. And I, I also think, I think they're overplaying their rail to rail competition and the CPKC moving, you're competing with the UP in the North South lanes. I mean, they're going to try, but I don't, I'm not sure if they can achieve it uh, at, at the speed they say. Uh, but I also believe there's a lot more truck off the highway. We already alluded to that phrase, uh, certainly in Laredo, uh, you know, with the second bridge coming. I think that they will achieve basically all of the accretive goals that they've set, perhaps not quite at the timeline. That makes me probably the biggest skeptic out there, with the exception of Jason. I would say one of the things about Keith Creel is if he says something, we just tend to believe it. Now, his track record suggests that's right. Uh, when he spoke at... Um, at Railtrans, I introduced him to come up to the podium and I said, you know, I wish we'd built a little pool in front of the steps up to the podium because we'd love to see if he really could walk on water. And while he laughed, he basically said, yeah, I could have. Uh, and everything he's done, he's, you know, he's accomplished. So well, there's been very little skepticism, very little sharp pencils put to his $800 million uh, in synergies out there. Again, I think that they are going to be at that level and maybe a little bit differently than he's envisaged. I think they're really promoting the rail on rail competition with the Union Pacific because he believes uh, and correctly that Marty Oberman believes that the STB believes that rails are a monopoly. He's going to go show them that rails can compete. But I, uh, so I think that's going to be a tougher and more expensive fight. Whereas I think that they're going to pick up a lot more than the rel relatively low number of 160,000 trucks off the highway especially in the on the Mexican border. So, you know, I'm not saying I'm I, I think skeptical that Keith isn't the the leader out there. I'm just saying it's, we still need to use pen, pens and pencils and calculators when we talk to him instead of just bowing down. Uh, I had a good opportunity to talk with Joe Hendricks, who's going to be the new is the new CSX leader. And uh, I think he's going to be terrific. And I think when when we talked before about culture change, the big theme at Railtrans and, and, and working better with labor, I think maybe we should look to CSX to be the, the leader there. His experience at Ford puts him in a very good stead. And I think he's very excited to tackle that problem. Jason. Yeah, sure. So with uh, with CP, you know, I, I was uh, laughing when Tony was saying that because, uh, you know, at, at one point it was, you know, WWKD, what would Keith do, right? Like, and that's, uh, but but look, look, to be honest, he, he really earned that because everything sure. he said 
turned out to be true, right? So, uh, so he's he's in the catbird seat right now, and uh, I I think there isn't a, a man or woman out there in the rail industry uh, that would look at this deal and would want anybody else running it, right? Like, so you know, if if you're going to have anybody saying we're going to hit these these numbers, it's um it, it's definitely Keith out there, and I think you know if you ask them now, they they're probably getting more um, uh, comfortable with the numbers as you move throughout the year. I think the Absolutely. only thing. The only thing that could put a wrench in all this is the is, is the overarching economy that might move the uh, uh, the field goal posts, if you will. So we'll we'll, we'll have to see. In, in terms of transactions, agree wholeheartedly. All the all the major short line deals are probably done. You're probably going to see some small ones. Oh, sure. Um, Norfolk Southern, not. I I don't expect that deal to close in 23. That's going to be more for 24. There's got to be a lot of local governmental approvals. Uh, again, Sony put it out. They operated the track they maintain the track so it's so it's so it's not like they're actually going to be acquiring capex they've been putting capex into it there's a minimum amount they've been doing like a lot of uh, uh leases uh, have so um we're going to get more on that in, in a couple of days we're tony and i are both being in atlanta for norfolk southern uh so we'll have to hear about that but i i don't expect a lot of deals that are going to move the needle for the rail space beyond the cpkcs i think that's going to be the 900 pound gorilla I don't think there's going to be any other class ones, at least in my uh, lifetime as an analyst. So uh, in terms of deals in the trucking space, you're right. Warner, who had never done a deal, now done a handful of them. Um, I think Warner is going to take a step back, though. I think we're going to now uh, 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 run some of these uh, new operations within their system. Um, uh, there, there's been a lot of others. You know, Knight, Knight got in the LTL space in the last couple of years. And I think they're going to look to expand that. You have... You know, uh, somebody like TFI that, that took over UPS rate a couple of years back, they sold their drive and trucking operation uh, in the U.S. And so now they're sitting on a pile of cash that they want to put back into their system. So look for them to do a potential big transaction uh, in 2023. Hub Group uh, has been consistently uh, a big company on the MA trail right now. And so I, I think you're going to see a lot of people with money, some larger companies, we're looking around as the economy dipped a little bit, and some of these sellers might be like, you know what, I might want to get out now. So I, I think 23 could bring some transactions. I, I think they're going to be more on the logistics uh, and trucking side than the rail. So I, I would say one of the areas of transactions, if you just sort of looked at it in terms of, you know, uh, spending money to promote growth. Is it you know is different? It's through capex, and I expect you know we've already had the capex trough. Um, I think CapEx is going to go back up. And I'm talking about not just railroads and terminals, and certainly on technology, uh, but the the IMCs are, are all spending a lot of money to grow their box fleet. You know, one of the biggest problems the railroads caused for themselves in recent years outside of the pandemic, which is a big thing to be outside of, uh, was not having enough container capacity in that big trucking shortage, the regulation hours of service and all that stuff that happened in 2018 when they they grew their business so much in intermodal, it, you know, a lot of it shipped over there, but it came over as trailers on flat cars. And so when trucks got loose, and this is your world, Jason, you know, a lot of it just shifted right back to the highway. Uh, and I think they're not going to make that mistake again. You're seeing, you know, 40% increase in the container fleet at J.B. Hunt, you know, over the next several years. So those, uh, I am optimistic about intermodal because, the, you know, the, the players on the, the tip of the spear are putting their money down. So are so is Schneider, so is Swift, et cetera. So that's one of the things that also, John, you talked about activists and whatnot. Now, the railroads are operating poorly now, but they're getting better. But there's nothing there in which there's an outlier the way there was in the past when we've seen activist involvement. But 
the general business press is telling us that 23 and 24 could be good years for activists. They've got a lot of dry powder. Uh, they've been changes in proxy rules, uh, et cetera, that makes it easier for them with less capital in involved to go after companies. So, you know, if I were in the boards of directors of any of these railroads, um, I would be make sure that I had my guard up, I guess, anywhere but Calgary, because, you know, the white, the unicorn that is Keith. Um, but, I, you know, I, I would say in general, if you're in bi the business world, activism is going to be a bigger deal next couple of years than it even has been of late. I think most of all that has already happened with railroads. Um, but, you know, we've, we've been surprised before. Yeah. I mentioned CapEx. I, you know, I'll say one thing. I mean, 23 uh, is most likely going to be a, a, as as good or better than 22 for a lot of companies in my space, only because there was such a delay in getting equipment. Uh, especially on the trucking side, you know, the M's, no pun intended, couldn't deliver. And, and John, you've probably heard about some of this at, at your company, but it, it's looking like, you know, obviously the order books filled up as soon as they opened them up for 23 on the truck side. Um, is there some double ordering in there? A absolutely. And, and But like most of the companies that I follow, the larger trucking companies are just like, here's my money, please give me my trucks. <laughs> um, and and uh, that, that's been the case. Um, and so, we're hearing things are getting a little bit better. So hopefully you're going to see some newer fleets running in 2023, which will, will for shippers are going to help obviously reliability because the newer the fleet you run, the better the service standards you're going to have. But it's also going to help uh, some of the costs for some of the larger trucking companies. Because when you look at like, for example, maintenance costs on a per mile basis, you're probably talking about seven cents a mile for a brand new truck versus like 35 cents a mile for like a super old, you know, seven, eight year old truck. So in the intermodal space, uh, in the international space, there was a lot of talk at the IANA Expo about, you know, again, the delays of getting chassis, for example, they were coming from China, they, you know, the, China, the shipping lines had better things to bring over. Uh, they're huge, huge tariffs. Their chassis were caught up in the supply chain labor issue, um, you know, using the storage on wheels, et cetera. So that was a big issue. So everybody ordered and now they're coming. Right. And the volumes, you know, as, as the consumer has shifted from Pelotons to Disney World, right, the volumes are moderating clearly. If you see the inbound L.A. Long Beach and that, you know, some of that is share we've talked about. But a lot of that also is just, you know, a, a, a more modest consumer spend. So there so was talk at IANA that we would go from shortage of equipment to excess equipment really quickly. You know, the, the pandemic had, had changed all this, but now you have, you know, steamship orders and whatnot. We're going to go back to. Uh, in that world, the more of the boom bust. It's less so for the railroads, you know, who are more modest in this. But, uh, you know, if you look at steamship capacity and all of the way that plays out in the supply chain, you know, that they used to go, you know, grow healthily, but outgrow the, the volume with capacity because it made sense to get bigger ships per, on a unit basis. But if everybody did it, where the benefit got dispersed, I think we're going to go back to that. Uh, so the, the era, era of shortage was short, you know, short lived, but, um, you know, we're going to go back to an era of surplus in most areas, uh, if not the rail side. Well, the uh, positive, Tony, is with a container, I could make you a swimming pool or a house. The choice is yours. There's always a use for them. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so being respectful of both your times, we barely touched the surface. And all, all I can tell people is if they want to hear more, they need to come to our spring conference in Newport. But I want to end this webcast the way we've ended the summer one with 
it's Christmas Eve. You're sitting on your couch. What are you listening to? And what are you drinking? <laughs> uh, I'm drinking a Shiraz. And as always, I'll be listening to the Stones. Jason? Um, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm going to be drinking a nice brown ale fireplace running. Um, and I am going to be listening this Christmas to, I'm going to go with a little bit of Iron Maiden. <laughs> nothing says christmas like metal that's right john knows it john knows me i i'm an unabashed heavy metal guy i uh if there's anything burning in my fireplace i left the stove on uh you know <laughs> uh, being an apartment dweller uh but but i will i'll put the yule log on a uh, channel on that late and watch the fire on my television set and listen to uh uh wild horses or brown sugar well, you, you know what, before we leave, I just, you know, uh, you know, guys, both of you, very Merry Christmas, happy holidays, you know, working with you guys has been a great part of uh, part of my Agreed. career. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and I always learn stuff from you guys when I listen to you. Uh, but I also wanted to take a time to wish everyone here who's listening to this podcast, a very, a very happy holidays and happy new year. I, uh, that, I second that all of those uh, emotions and thoughts, Jason. And thank yeah, you, John, for as always for organizing this. I hope to see some of you before, but I look forward to seeing all of you in the flesh in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. Well, here, here. Again, Merry Christmas to both of you. A happy new year, Jason. I'm sure I'll be seeing you very soon. And Tony, as always, we appreciate it. And I'm going to go with the way we left this. We got Harvard versus Syracuse. You could fight that out. Who's the beauty and the brains there. But with that, we'll end it on a Merry Christmas to both of you. And thank you very much.